Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is old there, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, blowing like the breeze. Country roads, take me home. To the place I belong, West Virginia, Mountain Mama, take me home, Country Roads. We are back. Welcome, welcome, welcome to yet another exciting episode of A Star is Born. I'm your host, of course, Chris Arneson, and I'm so happy to talk to you today about Angelina Jolie. Can't wait to do it. But before we get into that, oh my goodness, a beautiful day out. It's 11.42 a.m. Wednesday, March 13th, 2019, here in Pullman, Washington. Gorgeous day. Icy blue sky, not a cloud in the sky. Sitting on the second floor of the coffee house apartments here in my room, looking out the window at the Palouse. Still, um, snowed yesterday. Actually, last night, woke up to some snow on the ground, so that was a nice little surprise there. But, um, yeah, across the street from Washington State University. If you haven't listened to the first 23 episodes, go ahead and listen to those, and then come back here and join me. But, uh, I'm an author. Find my books on Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, uh, Sponge Cake, a mostly made-up story about a completely insane town, and what's in the fridge. And check out my blog, thegoat1.blogspot.com. Go to my website, chrisyauthor.com. Follow me on Twitter at chrisyauthor8 and Instagram at chrisarneson8. Thank you so much for share, share, sharing the podcast with a friend, family member, coworker, anyone and everyone. Uh, we're doing it big. We're doing it live. Super exciting. Um, a wild roller coaster ride over here at a Starsborn headquarters in uh, Pullman. Can't wait to see what we do with the podcast. But thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for telling people about it. Thank you for rating and reviewing it on iTunes. And I also want to plug a couple other things here. Uh, Strideline Socks. So what are Strideline Socks? It's actually the company that I was trying to think of that I was telling you guys about um, way back, a few episodes back, um, that they worked with LeBron James and the NBA and they're just a couple kids from the Seattle area uh, I think they went to UW to University of Washington um yeah I just picked up a new pair of Stradline socks actually well, I mean I didn't pick them up my mom my, they were my mom's and she just gave them to me but they were WSU socks so Cougar socks can't go wrong with that you know I was pretty happy because I'm a a sock fiend as y'all know and um Let's see. Um, what else did I want to? Oh, I also want to plug Trader Joe's salt uh, sea salt toffee. Since this is the uh, salt episode, um, it's Utah, so we're doing Utah because Angelina Jolie starred in the movie Salt, and Salt is of course uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. So there you go. There's that connection there, and yeah, I actually won. 
a little package of Trader Joe's sea salt toffee when I worked at Red Robin, Red Robins, and we had a little Christmas party, and um, we had a, what is it called, like a raffle, an auction, I guess, or no, just a raffle, so uh, yeah, I won that toffee, and then I ate a few pieces of it, and um, it was good, I, I ate it while I was washing the dishes that night, and then I uh, brought it home, it was all melty, since I set it on top of the dishwasher, dishwasher, and it got really hot, you know, and melted, but then solidified once again, once uh, once I got home. So it was all good in the end. I got to enjoy my delicious Trader Joe's sea salt coffee. Toffee. Um, if you want to sponsor a show, Trader Joe's, hit me up on social media. All right. Before we get this baby rolling, before we get into some Jolie talk, Jolie jabber, Let's uh, do a few things we do every episode. So let's talk about the Mariners, Mariners update. Uh, Seattle Mariners, my favorite baseball team, of course, and it's uh, spring training right now. So they play tonight. They host the San Francisco Giants at uh, in Peoria at their home field in spring training there down in Arizona. So very good. And that is on Root TV. Root um, cool. And, um, go get them, Mariners. Go get the W there. Yesterday, our game was canceled, so. And then, wow, when do we play next? Let's see when we play next. Um, um, what? That's weird. We don't have another game scheduled till Tuesday the 19th. What? So we have six days off after? That's kind of strange. A six-day break in the middle of spring training, apparently. Odd. <laughs> okay. So we'll have to come up with some stuff for the mayor's updates during the next six days. That's weird. All right. Anyway. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's do the NBA update. So that's your mayor's update. NBA update. Uh, The Lakers got the W last night. A rare win for the Los Angeles Lakers and LeBron. Uh, they beat the Chicago Bulls. Zach Levine, uh, the Bothell High guy from Bothell High, uh, from my high school, who played on my little league team, who's tearing up the NBA now, uh, he sat out that game. So I don't know if he had a minor injury or something, or if he's just resting, possibly. But Kobe's stolen high school jerseys returned. Let's see what this is. More than two years after it was stolen from a... Excuse me one second here. More than two years after a song from a display case at Lower Marion High School and following a trip halfway around the world and back, Kobe Bryant's high school uniform has been returned. The jersey was acquired by Liu Zhe, Liu Zhe a 28-year-old self-proclaimed Kobe fanatic from Harbin, China, in October 2018 after it resurfaced some 6,300 miles from where it was last seen in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Lou said he purchased it to add to the Kobe collection that he keeps in his home in the capital city of Heilongjiang province. Cool. It is returned. Kobe. Kobe. Um. Oh, man. Russell Westbrook. The jazz fan. The jazz fan has been banned permanently. And Russell Westbrook has been fined 25000 
uh, I think there was a courtside fan said some uh, uh, racial profanity and threatening language. Or no, Russell Westbrook was fined for directing profanity and threatening language to a fan. But Westbrook said that the fan said um, racial threats at him. So I think he... Did he? Sh- I think he shoved. Wait, let me see. Let's see what happened there. And I-, I didn't see a video of it, so I just read about what happened. Um, video of the Thunder guard. Video of Russell Westbrook saying "I'll f you up" to the Jazz fan. Except he actually said that effort to the Jazz fan um, and his female companion while standing near the end of the OKC bench during the second quarter. Went viral after being posted on Twitter. Oh, so he was on the bench. I thought he was in the game when it happened. Westbrook said after the Thunder win that it was an emotional reaction to Keisel telling him. <laughs> wow. Um, to Keisel, that's the name of the fam. Telling him, get on your knees like you're used to. A comment Westbrook considered completely disrespectful and racial. Jeez. It's a heated debate right there. <laughs> not, not debate, but a heated altercation, interaction, situation. Man, Russell Westbrook just... He's like a, one of the most intense athletes in the history of professional sports. So I, I'm sure that... I wonder how often nowadays fans, because I'm sure that they get stopped and they get like pointed out by other fans more. I was gonna say I wonder how often the fans like heckle players and stuff nowadays. I'm sure that happens uh, less often than it used to, because it gets stopped by uh, ushers and other fans point them out and and that's too bad. I like Russell Westbrook. He's one of my favorite players, so he didn't get suspended or anything. Fine, 25000 That's a lot of money, but... I mean, obviously, professional athlete, though. All right. Um, oh, and speaking of fans in professional sports, James Dolan had a... The Knicks owner had a little fan situation. So let's see what happened. James Dolan said the fan who confronted him and told him to sell the team after New York lost to the Kings has been banned from Madison Square Garden. What? <laughs> that fan got banned from Madison Square Garden just for saying that? That's so crazy. Um, Dolan said the confrontation was an ambush and said the fans sold the video to TMZ. The ban is only coming from the fact that we now have learned that he planned it. They were stalking me, says Dolan. Uh, you can't do that at Madison Square Garden. You're not allowed to stalk the owner and then confront him like that. Those particular guys had planned on making that video and selling it on TMZ. Um, the exchange began when the fan yelled at Dolan to sell the team as he was walking into the tunnel. The billionaire stopped and responded, So you think I should sell a team? And waved the fan over. You want to not come to any more games? Dolan asked. Adding the fans' comment was rude. Oh my gosh. James Dolan. He should just let it go. That's so crazy. He's like the most... He's one of the most hated owners in sports. 
especially by Knicks fans. I think I'm pretty sure Knicks fans just despise James Dolan because they've been so bad since he's been the owner. Let's see how long he's been the owner. Then we'll talk about the Simpsons. We'll do that segment, that that regular segment. We're doing all these regular segments before we do the actual meat part of the show, the show show. This time we can put some salt on the meat, you know, maybe some pink Himalayan salt, some of that sea salt. Um, let's see. How long has James Dolan been? Um, 1990 controversies, chairman. In 1999, Dolan was given an increased role in the managing the cable vision sports properties. Uh, I don't, okay. In 2003, Dolan hired Isaiah Thomas. I don't know when he became owner. That's somewhere around 2000. Uh, oh, and he also has the um, music group JD and the Straight Shot since 2000. Let's see what JD and the Straight Shot is. It's a rock band, country blues, and roots rock. Vanity Project. Um, and James Dolan's a front man. Hmm. <laughs> vanity. I like how Wikipedia describes it as a vanity project. They're like, don't take it seriously. He's just doing it for, he's vain. All right, so that's James Dolan. That's the fan altercation. That's your NBA update. We spent a lot of time talking about the NBA. Um, but I love it. It's my favorite league, uh, favorite professional sport. Let's see here. Let's do the Simpsons update. So this one is Skinner's Sense of Snow, uh, eighth episode, season 12. Originally aired December 17th, 2000. Um, yeah, this one I chose because I'm not going to spoil it for you guys, but here, first let me read a little bit about it. In the episode, a snowstorm traps the students with Principal Seymour Skinner and groundskeeper Willie in Springfield Elementary. When Skinner uses his army skills to control the students, they overthrow him and take over the school. Meanwhile, Homer and Ned set out to rescue the children using Ned's car. Oh my gosh. What I remember from this episode is this one scene when um, their car is like filling up with exhaust and Homer is hallucinating Ned as like a camel for some reason. But um, but like a, like a sexy camel because <laughs> he's, he's just like, Having a crazy hallucination, and it's just so funny. I'm pretty sure that's what that's what I remember. So it was hilarious. You had to be there. Um, but yeah, this episode relates to has a uh, salt in it at some point, but I don't want to spoil it for y'all. So I won't tell you anymore. But that's why I chose it because it's related to the whole salt theme of the episode and. The whole uh, Utah. There we go. Simpsons, one of my favorite shows of all time. Baby. And we talked about that. Let's pull up. Oh, we don't have Angelina Jolie even pulled up over here. We don't have her IMDb pulled up, which is what we do if you haven't listened to any of the episodes yet. Um, we go through the stars IMDb page. 
Look at all their films. Their filmography. Um, and, but before we do that, let's do the Calypso update. We do that every episode. David Sedaris' 2018 book. Um, it's a book of essays. I've been reading it for a while now. Quite a while. I'm still on page 250. Haven't read any of it since yesterday. But only eight pages left, so I guess I'm just saving those eight pages. Maybe I'll finish it after this podcast. Um, let's see. That's that's your Calypso update. Let's do the pin of the episode. Each episode, we have a different pin. Pin of the week right here. These are mostly from my baseball playing days in my youth. This one is 9-10 year old district Lil League. And it doesn't even say doesn't even say what team it is or where it's from or anything. All it says is just very general. Super, it could be anywhere. Whoops, just dropped my yellow legal pad on the ground. It's anywhere USA. It's just 9-10 year old district. Uh, Little League. And then it has a picture of a green baseball diamond and a baseball flying out like a home run. And then the baseball bat in the background. And then the bottom is blue. But there you go. That's a pretty standard pin there. I'd say right now if we're ranking my favorite pins, my top three. Let's go top five actually. My top five favorite pins right now. We've gone over all of them. The North Carolina basket, I love that North Carolina Tar Heels uh, basket one. I love the, uh, octop- the octopus one. I like the uh, ship wheel, the purple ship wheel that was Anacortis. I like uh, the Sturgis motorcycle, that one's awesome. And I like the uh, airplane, the airplane one. I think that might have been the first one we did. That's a really cool one, the uh, red, white, and blue airplane. But there you go. Those are some of the pins. They're sitting right here on my table. I'm looking at all of them right now that we've gone over. Uh, only a few left of those. But um, here's something we do every episode as well. Let's do this. The Maywood Recipes. Cooking the Fast Way. So this one is... Um, this is the recipe book from my elementary school. This book must be 15 years old. But um, this one's from Donna Siebert. Uh, or Cybert dipped ginger snaps. So here's your ingredients: two cups of sugar, one and a half cups of vegetable oil, two eggs, half cup of molasses, four cups of flour, four teaspoons of baking soda, one tablespoon of ground ginger, two teaspoons of ground cinnamon, one teaspoon of salt. Hey, it's a salt episode. There you go, and um. Vanilla baking chips and your directions. Combine sugar and oil, mix well. Add eggs and molasses. Combine dry ingredients, add gradually to creamed mixture and mix well. Shape shape into balls and roll in sugar. Bake on ungreased cookie sheets. Bake at 350 degrees for 10 to 12 minutes. Dip in melted vanilla baking chips to which you have added shortening to thin. And there you go. Sounds delicious. Let's do um one more here because that was a short one. This next one is from Joanna Lowell Forker. <clears throat> I think this is one of the ladies 
one of my mom's friends, uh, one of the ladies that she gets together with to watch The Bachelor <laughs> every week at one of the, they always get together at one of their houses and watch The Bachelor. It's pretty fun. Pretty funny. I mean, I don't join them, but <laughs> I wish. I wish I was invited. Cool enough to to join that that group of crazy ladies. Um, let's see. Joanna Lowell Forker. Double chocolate mint brownies. Sounds absolutely delicious. My mom has definitely made these. Your ingredients. One box of brownie mix. Three cups of powdered sugar. One third cup of butter. Four tablespoons of milk. One tablespoon of peppermint extract. Two squares of unsweetened chocolate. Half package of Girl Scout Thin Mints. Crushed. The best, my favorite Girl Scout cookies, Thin Mints. Frozen Thin Mints. Um, Alright, here we go. Your directions. Prepare brownie mix according to the package directions and let cool. Mix together powdered sugar, butter, milk, and peppermint extract. Add green food coloring for fun. Um, Spread over brownies and sprinkle with crushed Thin Mints. Refrigerate for 15 minutes. Heat chocolate over low heat until melted. Spread over cookies and refrigerate another two hours before cutting and serving. Delicious. Those sound real good. Um, Let's do one more from Joanna Lofolker. Uh, Double fudge cream cheese brownies. Cream cheese brownies? What? Never heard of it. I've heard of cream cheese hot dog, but I've never heard of cream cheese brownies. Um, Let's see. Your ingredients. Here we go. Brownies. One cup of butter. Four ounces of unsweetened chocolate. Two cups of sugar. One and a half cups of all-purpose flour. Four eggs, slightly beaten. One teaspoon of salt. Salt episode. One teaspoon of baking powder. Two teaspoons of vanilla. One cup of semi-sweet chocolate chips. And the filling ingredients. One quarter cup of sugar. Two tablespoons of butter, three ounces of cream cheese, softened, one egg, one tablespoon of all-purpose flour, and a half teaspoon of vanilla. And your directions. Heat oven to 350 degrees. In a two-quart saucepan, combine one cup of butter and unsweetened chocolate. Cook over medium heat, stirring occasionally until melted, four to six minutes. Stir in remaining brownie ingredients except chocolate chips. Fold in chocolate chips. Spread half of batter in degreased 9x13 baking pan. In a small bowl, stir together all filling ingredients. Spread over brownie mixture. Spoon to get spoon remaining batter over cream cheese. Batter will not entirely cover cream cheese mixture. Bake for 30 to 35 minutes or until brownies begin to Pull away from size of pan. Mm-mm-mm. Guess the brownies have a mind of their own there. They just start to pull away from the pan. It sounds delicious. I would like to try the uh, cream cheese combination with the brownies. That sounds like a really interesting combination. Um, let's see. I think now is a good time for me to tell you guys a couple anecdotes I was going to say. Oh yes, I was going to say this one time, this is no 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 um 
I guess I could have talked about this in the NBA segment. But I didn't think of that. So that's okay. I'll just say it now. This is NBA related. I saw um, Slick Watts, who I got um, his book as a Christmas present like a, a long time ago, like a decade ago. And I'm pretty sure like right after I got that book, I saw him outside Key Arena just in the outdoor, like walking up some stairs in this giant stairwell right outside the the key. And uh, I think he was wearing like a Sonics, like starter jacket or something. And um, I, I like to remember, I hope he was wearing a headband because he was known for wearing his headband askew. But I can't remember if he was or not, but I like to think he was. And yeah, I think we said hi to him. I think I was just with my dad. I'm sure we were like, Hey, Slick. I'm sure we said hi. That was pretty cool, though. Um, something else kind of random I wanted to bring up is I can't believe that we used to play this card game called a 52-card pickup. If you guys don't know it, basically, <laughs> you just throw all the cards, all 52 cards in the deck on the ground, and then pick them up. <laughs> Excuse me. And that's the game. That's your game. Throw the cards on the ground, pick them up. So it's kind of like a, the physical version of the card game War, where you just put a card down and whichever one's bigger, you win. So not not very complicated, not a lot of rules, but I just thought that was funny that we used to play that game. And then another fun card game I used to play, I guess I could still do this one. This one's a fun one. Throwing cards in a hat. Kind of just sitting in a chair and putting a hat like, what, like seven feet away? Just throwing the card, like flicking it kind of. I think that's how you do it. But yeah, it kind of reminds me of that football game where you know, people put up their put up their hands like a field goal post and then you make up that little paper football and you have to flick it through. I never, never was good at those kind of games. <laughs> never could make a great paper airplane. But I don't know if there's like some science behind that or maybe it's just the architecture. I do remember in um, wood shop class in seventh grade, our teacher, Mr. Ock, Mr. Akiyama, we call him Mr. Ock. He used to call everyone turkeys. He's like, hey, turkey. <laughs> um, he was really nice, though. Definitely remember him calling everyone turkey. So, but I was not good at woodshop though. Terrible. Terrible. Like, this one thing that my parents kept, that my mom kept, and she still has, is this uh, ghost. This ghost made of wood that I made. And it's like the most simple thing ever. It's just basically like the shape of a ghost. And, <laughs> like, it's an upside down you, basically. I don't think I even carved out any eyes or anything. I might have just drawn the eyes on there, but <laughs> I thought that was, that's like an example of my level of expertise with the wood making. Um, let's see. I want to talk all oh, about, so I was at a, um, this was pretty recently. Um, I was at a dive bar with a couple buddies, Brett and Chris Solar. Brett Ho, Chris Solar, a couple of my buddies live in Seattle. Um, this was a dive bar in Seattle, and this random guy 
with this big gray mustache came up to us and he was like one of the only other people in the bar and he just started going on and on about I think he was wearing like some sort of hat too he kept going on and on about Tim Allen and just like telling us a story of like how Tim Allen like went to jail and stuff and he was like dealing cocaine and I was like does this guy know Tim Allen or something or is this guy Tim Allen (laughs) but it was so it was funny he was like a real character like you know those people who are like very like eccentric and they just have like those unique things that they like idiosyncrasies I guess but I just thought that was that was an awesome memory and he talked to us for probably 10 minutes about Tim Allen I was like Maybe he worked for Home Improvement or something. Or maybe he, he's just a carpenter. He's just a big fan of the show. I was I was seeing a lot of Tim Allen billboards in Seattle when I was driving around working for the mowing lawns. A lot of uh, last man standing billboards. Tons. I'd never seen a second of that show. But I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure it's good. I used to watch a little bit of Home Improvement. I enjoy... Uh, Wilson peeking over the fence. <laughs> That's a neighbor's. Wilson, Wilson. That's a neighbor's name, right? Um, something else random. I think now we should let's get into Angelina Jolie's credits here before we talk about this next thing, because this next thing is so extremely random that you guys might not even be able to handle it. Um, let's just get into AJ. Let's do it. Uh, the daughter of John Voight. One of the stars of one of my favorite movies of all time. National Treasure. Uh, he plays Nicolas Cage's father in National Treasure. Uh, Alright, here we go. Angelina Jolie, first credit. Looking to Get Out, 1982. Plays Tosh Warner. Yeah, she used to go by Angelina Jolie Voight. Then she dropped the Voight when she became super famous and successful on her own. Uh, Anto, Antonello Venditti, Alta Morea, video short from 1990. She plays girl, uncredited. Now we know what uncredited means. If you've listened to the first 23 episodes, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it means her name did not appear in the beginning or end credits on the movie. Or video short. I used to get upset. Super angry about it. <laughs> Why does this say uncredited? But it's listed in her credits. Um, Alright, here we go. Video from 1993. The Lemonheads. It's about time. Uh, girl in car. Uncredited. Uh, I remember the Lemonheads. I've listened to a few of their songs. I think, yeah, the Lemonheads. Don't they have a, like, What About Ray or something? I think I have a song called that. Uh, Cyborg 2, Glass Shadow is a video from 1993. She plays Cash. A short from 1993, Angela and Viral plays Angela. Short from 1993, Alice and Viral. She plays Alice. I wonder who, I gotta see who Viral is now. She couldn't be Viral in one of the, Viral's not even listed. Yeah, she's the only person listed. 
in the cast. Okay. Maybe Viral's just like her imaginary friend or something. Video short, 1994, Meatloaf, Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through. Runaway Teenager, Uncredited. Video 1994, Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell 2, Picture Show. Music video, Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through, Uncredited. Uh, I guess those are like tied together somehow. 1995, Without Evidence, Jody Swearingen. Swearingen. 1995, Hackers, she plays Kate. 1996, Love is All There Is, plays Gina Malasisi. I want to see what Hackers was. Hackers are blamed for making a virus that will capsize five oil tankers. Did not expect that. See, that's why you check to see what it is. It's a comedy, drama, drama and crime. Okay, okay. Um... 107 minutes, PG-13. Let's see what Without Evidence was. Jody Swearingen. The story revolves around a possible conspiracy behind the real-life murder of a Oregon's head of corrections, Michael Frank. 99 minutes, thriller, drama. And let's see what Love is All There Is. Is Romeo and Juliet get transplanted to the Bronx? What? So it's kind of like um, Clueless, how it's based on the Jane Austen novel Emma. Kind of like that, right? We talked about that. This is a long, it's a comedy romance, a rom-com, 120 minutes, two hours. Rate R. All right. Now is a good time for me to... Read The Road Trip America by Andrew F. Wood. It's a state-by-state tour guide to offbeat destinations. So, here's Utah. This is the one for the state of Utah, baby. Here we go. Did you know? Visitors to Levin, Utah confront yet another wacky story for the origin of the town's name. Historians point out that Levin, or Levon, uh... Like two words, refers to a rear rank of an army or a frontier settlement. Local folks out to tickle your funny bone tell another story. Levon got its name as a backward spelling of navel. Unbelievable? Look at the map. Levon does lie in the center of the state. What? So like a, like a belly button. Navel. That's funny. All right, here we go, Utah. In some early travel cards, you might spot a See America First billboard. The slogan refers to a Western booster movement that blossomed throughout the first three decades of the 20th century. Even Cole Porter tried to capitalize on the movement with his 1960, 1916 musical of the same name that featured a tune called Will You Love Me When My Fliver Is a Wreck? As this tune reminds us the realities of highway life, the unimproved two-lane roads and the vast distances between mechanics brought many auto expeditions to a grinding halt. However, decades before, a vast stretch of struggle and hardship also brought a group of Mormon pioneers to the Great Basin, where they built a temple, settled a territory, 
and embarked on the path towards statehood. Utah has changed much since those pioneer days, integrating its self-proclaimed peculiar people into the fabric of the nation and offering tourist destinations to the hardy traveler. As it has since his settlement, Salt Lake City, Salt Baby, Salt Episode, Angelina Jolie, um, Salt Lake City offers a comfortable respite for wary motorists, particularly those interested in the history of the Latter-day Saints. People cannot tour the Mormon temple, unfortunately. You'll be told it's not secret, but sacred. You, yet you can get an earful of heavenly music if the Mormon tabernacle choir is in town. Or you can tour the temple square, um, where eager and earnest missionaries just love to chat with visitors. If religious pursuits don't interest you, there's always Salt Lake's Gravity Hill, an optical illusion like any number of mystery spots and freaky vortices that appear to break the law of physics. Naturally, this comic cosmic conundrum sounds like a Bill Nye. <laughs> sounds like Bill Nye's AOL Instant Messenger username. Cosmic Conundrum 22. Um, <laughs> this cosmic conundrum is located a few blocks from the state capital. East of Salt Lake, near the Colorado border, you'll find one of the truly great signs ever to grace the roadside. The Dine of Ville they used to welcome visitors to Vernal with batting eyelashes and imaginary roar. The friendly 40-foot-tall dinosaur came close to extinction when her home motel was demolished, but townsfolk and other lovers of Dinah um, moved her across town where she stands tall. So, and then there's a picture of a giant dinosaur, and then it says Dinosaur Motel. Um, there's no easy way for Vernal South, from Vernal South to Moab, but getting there puts you on the set where Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise, 1991, met their tragic and controversial end. Part of the power of this film may be found in the cinematography in which lonely mesas, snorting 18-wheelers, and miles of blacktop form the backdrop for a drama in which a waitress and the housewife and housewife hit the highways after killing a would-be rapist. Finding no hope on the road, Thelma and Louise turn to each other, even as they turn to crime. Turn on. Excuse me. Even as they turn to crime. Terrifying and even comic moments of violence intersect long, leisurely stretches of driving as the two desperados head west in a 66 Thunderbird. Taking a more leisurely course, you'll end up in Four Corners, USA, where Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona form the only point in which four states meet. You'll endure the heat and even find some traffic, pay the small fee, and take the picture in which you straddle the magical marker, and then get back on the road. And then there's a picture of a pioneer. Um, what is it? Like a wagon being pulled by a couple bulls? What are these? Yeah, I guess they look like bulls. Um, Utah covered wagon days. Salt Lake City, July 20th to 25th. Then there's a picture. See a sign that says, See America First. And it says, Home Sweet Home was never like this. And then... There's a couple, couple, uh, a guy and his wife in a uh, red convertible, and they're actually—it's actually somehow a red convertible that they're towing like a house, like a miniature, one of those micro homes, that somehow has a great towing capacity for that little convertible, I suppose. All right.
Let's do something fun here. Let's do something fun. Let's shake it up, baby. Shake it up here. Shake it up. Um, The Tao of Pooh. Let's introduce a new book. This is something that I have not even read. So I can't claim it to be an inspiration or anything. Like some of the other things I've been reading. But um, it was on our bookshelf in the TV room. And I think it's, something, it's definitely something my mom has read and something she bought probably at a garage sale or something it is by benjamin hoff so the tao of Pooh. it's a penguin book um, published by penguin the how of Pooh. the tao of who the tao of Pooh, in which it revealed that one of the world's greatest taoist masters isn't chinese or a venerable philosopher but is in fact none other than the effortlessly calm still reflective bear A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh. And then it says, While Eeyore frets, and Piglet hesitates, and Rabbit calculates, and Owl pontificates, Pooh just is. And that's a clue to the secret wisdom of the Taoists. So I'll tell you guys, before we hop into this, I think it's important to set some context. So let's look at what Taoism is. It's a Chinese philosophy based on the writings of Lao Tzu, 6th century BC, advocating humility and religious piety. Excuse me. Um, It emphasizes living in harmony with the Tao. And the Tao is a fundamental idea in which, in most Chinese philosophical schools, um, Taoism, however, it denotes the principle that is the source, pattern, and substance of everything that exists. So the Tao. Okay. It's, uh, t- teaches embrace wonder and the joy in living gracefully with style. Okay, so that sets the table there for you. And here we go. Benjamin Hoff, the Tao of Pooh. What, <clears throat> what's this you're writing? asked Pooh. Climbing on the writing table. The Tao of Pooh, I replied. The How of Pooh, I asked Pooh, smudging one of the words I had just written. The Tao of Pooh, I replied, poking his paw away with my pencil. It seems more like the Owl of Pooh, said Pooh, rubbing his paw. Well, it's not, I replied huffily. What's it about, asked Pooh, leaning forward and smearing another word. It's about how to stay happy and calm under all circumstances, I yelled. Have you read it? asked Pooh. That was after some of us were discussing the great masters of wisdom, and someone was saying how all of them came from the East, and I was saying that some of them didn't, but he was going on and on, just like the sentence, not paying any attention when I decided to read a quotation of wisdom from the West to to prove that there was more to the world than one half, and I read, When you wake up in the morning, Pooh, said pig said piglet at last what's the first thing you say to yourself what's for breakfast said Pooh. what do you say piglet i say i wonder what's going to happen exciting today said piglet Pooh nodded thoughtfully it's the same thing he said what's that said the unbeliever said wisdom from the western taoist i said it sounds like something from winnie the pooh he said it is i said that's not about taoism he said oh yes it is i said no, it's not, he said. What do you think it's about? I said. It's about this dumpy little bear that wanders around asking silly questions, making up songs, and going through all kinds of adventures 
without ever accumulating any amount of intellectual knowledge or losing his simple-minded sort of happiness. That's what it's about, he said. Same thing, I said. <clears throat> that was when I began to get an idea. To write a book that explained the principles of Taoism through Winnie the Pooh and explained Winnie the Pooh through the principles of Taoism. When informed of my intentions, the scholars exclaimed, preposterous, and things like that. Others said it was the stupidest thing they'd ever heard, and that I must be dreaming. Some said it was a nice idea, but too difficult. Just where would you even begin, they asked. Well, an old Taoist saying put it, puts it this way. A thousand-mile journey starts with one step. So I think that we'll start at the beginning. The Tao of Pooh. And let's leave it right there. I think that's a good little cliffhanger. Um, but let's, let's actually look at something. This is a book, especially if you listen to the last episode. I was reading a bunch of this book in the uh, Animal Actors episode. Um, this is by Carl Duker. It's called Night Hoops. Um, Mr. Duker was a teacher at my elementary school. And he's an author of a bunch of cool sports books. Um, that I really loved to read growing up. And this is one of them. Um, yeah. Mr. Duker. Shout out. Here we go. Chapter 2. This is chapter 2 of part 2. At school the next day, I kept expecting Trent to be around every corner. I don't know what more I thought he was going to do. I didn't really expect him to choke me to death in the hallway in front of a thousand kids. Still, I didn't think he'd tell me how sorry he was and invite me to his birthday party either. I didn't see him until P.E. In the locker room, he ignored me as we suited up. No threat about how I'd better be watching out, how he was going to finish me off someday. Nothing at all. I breathed a little easier, vowing to myself never to cross swords with him again. He could score all the touchdowns he wanted. The guy who did talk to me was Luke Jackson, but it wasn't about Zach or Trent or what had happened. As we ran our warm-up laps together, we talked hoops. All through P.E. class, I thought about Dad's extra ticket and how I owed Luke. At the end of the class, I asked if, him if he wanted to go. The answer was immediate. Sure do. If I'm going to live here, I'm going to, I've am going. i got to start rooting for the Sonics. Bring back the Sonics, David Stern. Come on. Or not David. Uh, Adam Silver. Oh, that was just a little something for me right there. Um, after school on Friday, we walked to my house together. When he saw my court, he licked his lips. How about a little one-on-one -on -one while we wait for your dad? We played all afternoon. I had known from gym class that he was good, but now I saw just how good. He was quick, with soft hands and the touch of a natural scorer. He had the attitude of a scorer, too. When his shots were dropping, he rebounded and played tough defense. But when he hit a cold spell, his whole game fell apart. He stopped blocking out on rebounds. He stopped hustling after loose balls. Our games had a crazy rhythm to him. He'd jump out of the way, um, jump out way ahead, or he'd fall way behind. Whichever it was, I'd play my steady game, hoping either to catch him when he cooled down or to hold him off when his hot streak came. Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. We played half a dozen games before Dad's truck pulled into the driveway. Then the three of us shot around for a little while. In the beginning, Dad was unimpressed. Then Luke caught fire and sank about a dozen shots in a row, opening Dad's eyes. You going out for the Bothell team, he asked. You bet, Luke answered. My father smiled. I'll tell you what, I'm jealous of your coach because I'm looking at two parts of a pretty good-looking team. Dad and I went inside to tell Mom we were off. 
Scott was in our downstairs den watching television. I saw Dad look that way, but Scott didn't even come up to say hello. Mom stood in the doorway, her hands on her hips. I'll have Nick back by 11 at the latest, Dad said. Mom looked right past him to me. Have fun. I will, I managed. Things got better once we piled into the truck. The scrimmage was at Seattle Pacific University. We stopped at Kid Valley for hamburger, hamburgers, fries, and milkshakes, then hopped on the freeway at 145th for the ride in Seattle. We talked basketball all the way down to the game, pro hoops, college hoops, high school hoops. Luke knew as much about the players and teams as Dad and I did, which made it easy. You hear you've got courtside seats, and you figure that the seats are really three or five or ten rows up, but we sat on folding chairs at midcourt. The Sonics were right there, and I mean right there. At the airport, I'd once seen the Seattle Mariners. They weren't all that different from other men in the airport. A little bigger, maybe, with a little less fat around the gut and a lot more jewelry around their necks. If I hadn't spotted Ken Griffey Jr., I might not have recognized any of them. Being close to the Sonics was entirely different. There was no way I would have, wouldn't have recognized them as basketball players. It wasn't just their height, though they were incredibly tall. It was more their mus- the muscles. The power forwards, the centers, those guys were absolutely massive. During warm-ups, I stared at them, my mouth hanging open. Dad nudged me. Forget about those big guys. Uh, Nick, you can't learn anything from him. Keep your eyes on Gary Payton. The glove. Uh, when I was little, Michael Jordan was the player I dreamed of being. Me and every other kid in the country. In my closet, I had Jordan shoes and a Jordan jersey. But Jordan was too good. I've got some of his games on video. Every once in a while, I watch one, hoping to pick up some moves. And sometimes I do. But always from one of his teammates. The things Jordan did, it's as if he was from some other planet. You can't even pretend you can be like him. Gary Payton has to work to be great. When I watch him, I can visualize myself doing the things he does. Sometimes I'll even stop the cassette and practice one of his moves in the mirror and then try it out the next time I play. The Sonics were playing an inter-squad game, not even an exhibition, the green against the orange. Half the players I'd never heard of. Who are these guys? Luke asked in a whisper as they warmed up. We were so close he was afraid one of them might hear. My father leaned toward him. They're from everywhere. High schools, junior colleges, South America, Lithuania. There are ten guys fighting for one or two spots on the roster. The ones that don't make it will end up in the CBA or in Europe. We're back home shooting around at the rec center. My father looked out at the court. They'll play hard. This is a chance of a lifetime for them. He was right. Once the game started, it was no-namers who were flying up and down the court, hurling themselves on every loose ball, crashing the boards. Peyton and the other veterans went at a slower pace. The season was weeks away, and they were just loosening up. Sometimes they almost seemed amused by the fury around them. There was one guard from Tennessee who was really playing super. He wasn't passing the ball much. None of the no-namers were doing much passing. But when he had the ball, he made slashing drives to the hole or else pulled up for high-arching rainbows from outside the three-point line. If you didn't know better, you'd have thought he was an all-star point guard and that Peyton was nobody hoping to catch on with the team. Early in the third quarter, the Tennessee guy stole the ball on the double team. He came out of the traffic like a bullet heading up court ahead of the pack, or almost ahead of the pack. Peyton was the last defender. I figured the Tennessee guy would pull up for a jumper, and that must have been what Peyton thought too. 
Instead, he gave Peyton a little stutter step, a stutter step, then blew by him and soared for an amazing tomahawk jam. Like the other 2,000 or so in the stands, I jumped to my feet and let out a roar. When we settled back into our seats, Dad leaned over to me. Mark my words, Peyton will make him pay. All through the third quarter and into the fourth, Peyton was almost invisible. He made some nice passes, played some good defense, but you didn't notice him. Then, with about three minutes left and his team down six points, he turned his game up a notch. First, he hit a three-pointer, then stole the ball and drove for a thundering jam of his own. The Tennessee kid suddenly looked rattled. He took an off-balance jumper that missed badly, and Peyton brought the ball down with the chance to seal the win, to steal the win. The seconds were ticking away, 13, 12, 11. A couple of guys flashed into the key, but still Payne kept his dribble up top, his eyes locked on the Tennessee kid. Six, five, four. Then Payton made his move. A hard drive to his right and a lightning quick crossover dribble that left the Tennessee guy flailing. Payton took the ball hard to the glass and let his scoop lay and drop through, through just as the horn sounded. Everyone was up and cheering, and Payton grinned ear to ear right in the face of the Tennessee guy. After the game, we went to Starbucks for muffins and hot chocolate. We sat talking about the game, always coming back to Peyton's winning shot. Talk about knowing how much time's left, Luke said. Man, he cut that close. We finished eating. Dad dropped Luke off and drove me home. When he pulled into the driveway, he turned in his seat to face me. You saw how Peyton played tonight, he said, how he took, his, took the game into his own hands at the end. That's how I want you to play. Pass all you want throughout the whole game. Lead the world in assists. Make your coach and teammates happy. But when it's crunch time, when the game is on the line, you take the final shot. You understand what I'm saying? You take it. I understand, Dad. He reached over, roughed up my hair. Good. Then he looked at me. I miss you, Nick. That lump came back into my throat. I miss you, too, I said. He reached across me and opened my door. You better get inside. We're late, and I don't want your mom to worry. That was chapter two of Night Hoops. Love that book. So good. We'll have to come back to that in a little bit. Um, Let's see. Let's get back to AJ. Oh, let's do that thing that I said I was going to... I said I was going to tell you guys about this, but... Here it is. It's spelunk, spelunking. <laughs> That's the random thing. That's the random thing I was going to talk about, but I didn't want to break into it before um, talking about Jolie's IMDb page for a little bit. So, yes, spelunking. Let's see. I'm, it's kind of fascinating to me because um, this is completely random, just a random topic if you're confused. I'm sorry. Uh, it's caving, also known as potholing in the U- in the United Kingdom. This is just an interesting thing to me because I've, I have visited caves in, um, let's see, South Dakota. I'm going to try to find the caves, South Dakota caves. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty claustrophobic. So the idea of going spelunking in a cave is absolutely devastating to me. And I do like the movie, um, speaking of movies, since this is the movie podcast in the end, um, it's called The, the Descent. I love that movie. 
and it's a spelunking movie. It's a horror movie. One of my one of my favorite genres, along with comedy, heist, reunion, and still debating whether we should allow boardwalk to be one of my favorite genres of movie. But anyway, let's talk let's talk some spelunking. Um I, the challenges involve cave in, involved in caving vary according to the cave being visited. In addition, in addition to the total absence of light beyond the entrance, see that's one thing that's terrifying. You definitely have to wear like a headlamp for sure, but you have to rely on. What if you accidentally break it or the battery goes out? You're trapped and it's so dark. Oh my god! You definitely need like a few partners for sure going in. You'd never go in solo, I'm sure. You'd be insane. You'd be insane just to do this in general. Um, so negotiating pitches and squeezes and water hazards can be difficult. See, negotiating pitches, I don't like the sound of negotiating with it. Like, that means you're like squeezing through. Like, a pitch is a steep section of a route that requires a rope between two belays. As part of a climbing system. Um, Jeez. Sounds so scary. Makes me think of 127 Hours. That James Franco movie. That's a good one. Um, I love the part where he jumps. Where they jump into the water. Through the crevice. And they jump into like aqua blue. Like turquoise water. That's so cool. Uh, Makes me want to jump into some turquoise water. Like a. What's it? It's like a commercial for Fiji. It's a Fiji water commercial. Uh, here we go. I don't know. I don't know. Motivation. Caving is often undertaken for enjoyment of outdoor activity or for physical exercise, as well as original exploration, similar to mountaineering and diving. Um, physical or biological science is also an important goal for some cavers. Um... Caving in certain areas has been utilized as a form of eco and adventure tourism. Caving has been described as an individualist team sport by some, as cavers can often make a trip without direct physical assistance from others, but will generally go in a group for companionship or to provide emergency help if needed. Generally go in a group. Okay. So I would think always go in a group. Some, however, consider the assistance cavers give each other as a typical team sport activity. I like that. Um, etymology, safety. Caves can be dangerous. Hypothermia, falling, flooding, falling rocks, physical exhaustion are main risks. Rescuing people from underground is difficult and time-consuming. Requires special skills, a special set of skills. A spelunking skills. I have a very special set of spelunking skills. Um, training and equipment. Uh, caving in warmer climates carries a risk of contracting histoplasmosis, a fungal infection that is contracted from bird or bat droppings. It can cause pneumonia and it can disseminate in the body to cause continued infections. Dang, it sounds like there's a ton of risks to go with caving. Reading all this does not convince me to book my next trip on a caving exploration. <laughs> Let's look at the descent though. I do I do like that film. It's a good caving film. 
um, it's British. British, British caving. And this cave, cave pretty, pretty dark, ain't it? <laughs> I have to squeeze through this tiny little crevice, don't I? It's my British accent. Um, The Descent, 99 minutes, rated R. Adventure, horror, thriller. A caving expedition goes horribly wrong as the explorers become trapped and ultimately pursued by a strange breed of predators. Yeah, this is a great horror movie. This is definitely one of my one of my top horror movies. Um, speaking well, obviously speaking of top horror movies, uh, Cabin in the Woods, my favorite horror movie of all time. Um, kind of a genre twister, a genre bender, if you will. It's a lot of different things. But speaking of cabins, um, Cabin on a Lake is one of the places I would like to live in my life someday, along with. A cottage in a forest, a cabin in a lake, um, high-rise in the city, and um, the newly added mansion by the sea. And um, let's talk The Strangers. I do remember that Dennis from It's Always Sunny is in this one. Pretty briefly, I think. Uh, the Strangers. Let's see what IMD Bizzle has to say. It's from 2006. Liv Tyler's in it. Uh, a young couple stayed in, staying in an isolated vacation home are terrorized by three unknown assailants known as the Strangers. Yeah, this is a really good movie. It's one of those, like, the call's coming from inside the house. One of those movies. Um, so that one and The Descent. There's a couple good horror movies for y'all to check out. Um, let's go back to venture on back over to AJ's IMDb. Here we go. We left you with love. All there is all there is. Um, 1996. She 1996 was a big year for her. 95, 96. Um, Foxfire. She plays Legs Sadovsky. <laughs> Legs Sadovsky. Let's see what Foxfire is. The story of five teenage girls who form an unlikely bond after beating up a teacher who has sexually harassed them. They build a solid friendship, but their wild ways begin to get out of get out of control. Let's see if anyone else famous is in it, along with AJ. Um, I want to say no. I don't recognize any of those names. Okay, 1996, Mojave Moon. She plays Ellie. What's Mojave Moon? It's 95 Minutes, a rom-com thriller, rated R. Al McCord is hanging out at his favorite restaurant when he meets an attractive young woman who is looking for a ride from the, des- from the city out into the Mojave Desert, where her mother lives. Little does he know that Ellie is falling in love with him. Uh, he is falling... That while Ellie is falling in love with him, he is falling for her mother, Julie. Despite the nearby presence... Of Julie's boyfriend, who seems likely to go berserk at any moment. Even, even more strange, hilarious events follow, and it's up to Al to find some explanation. His life may never be this again. This the same. That sounds like a quite the quirky movie. Um, Danny Aiello. Let's see, a TV movie from 1997, True Woman. Lorraine Neeson 
Speaking of true women, Lorraine Newsom and the Mooses is a true woman. It's the story of true women. Um, TV movie, 1997, Virginia, Georgia, Virginia, Lash Woods. What a name. Her character's name has two U.S. states in it. Georgia, Virginia, Lash Woods. Wow. I gotta see what this one's about. We we gotta check this one out. Um, it's 183 minutes. This movie's over three hours. Oh my god. <laughs> you have to be... This is like a two-day event. Uh, TV movie, PG-13. Action, adventure, biography. Covering nearly 50 years of mid-19th century turmoil from the tumultuous... Uh, I feel like turmoil and tumultuous are two similar words. Uh, tumultuous Texas Revolution to the early women's suffrage movement. True, true woman is a gripping tale of endurance, love, and above all, gritty female determination. Wow. Georgia, Virginia, Lash Woods. Um, TV movie, 1997, George Wallace. She plays Cornelia Wallace. Video short. Is George Wallace the the sports machine guy? No, that's a different guy. That's um George Michael. That's what I'm thinking of. George Wallace is following Alabama Governor George Wallace through segregation, presidential elections, an assassination attempt, and personal trauma. He's former Alabama governor. Um excuse me. Video short from nineteen ninety seven. The Rolling Stones, anybody seen my baby? She plays stripper, uncredited. That sounds like a crazy video short. That's like an intense video. It's just Mick Jagger's just running around asking random people, Have you seen my baby? I'm looking for my baby. Um, <laughs> 1997, Playing God. Claire. Let's see what Playing God is. A disgraced surgeon leaves his former life and enters the criminal underworld as a gunshot doctor for criminals. I've never heard of a gunshot doctor. It's a doctor that specializes in gunshots? Those things are... Wow. David Duchovny? For you uh, X-Files heads out there? It's a crime thriller drama. 94 minutes, raid R. Gunshot doctor. Kind of like a ER doctor, I guess. Um, Gia, a TV movie from 1998. She plays Gia Karanji. 1998, Hell's Kitchen. She plays Gloria. Gloria. Uh, 1998, Playing by Heart. She plays Joan. Um, oh, okay, here's something. Oh, we'll leave you on a good one. This is a cliffhanger for... A good movie that I've seen is coming up next. Or at least I've seen part of it. But here's something I wanted to talk about. It's a um, a new regular segment. Um, I made a pie chart, y'all. I made a pie graph. This is a pie graph of my favorite milk flavors. So we're not, we're not talking about regular milk. We're talking about milk flavors here. Here we go. 11% chocolate. 22% strawberry. 23% banana. And the winner, favorite milk flavor, 44% vanilla. 
you guys have never tried vanilla milk, it is absolutely scrumptious, delicious. I don't think it's well known. I think most people probably just confuse vanilla milk with regular milk. But um, no, try vanilla milk. It's in bottles. I think Darigold makes it. I think Nesquik makes them. Check it out next time you go to the grocery store and you're in the milk section. Search for some vanilla milk. Banana is good too. I think banana is even more rare than vanilla though, from what I've gathered. Um, yeah, there you go. And while we're at that, let's also mention, let's just bring it up. There's no no segue here. Let's just, we do it every episode, so no better time than right now. It's the AMC triple feature, baby. So, talk about this every episode. If you've listened to the first 23, you know, you're right here with me. Um, you know what I'm about to say. It's June 2009. And I was with my best bud growing up, Stephen Ungrecht. And we went to AMC Woodenville the movie theater where I would go on to work uh, seven years later, or I guess only like six and a half, really. I worked there uh, February 2016 to August. Um, But yes, we went probably right after school got out um, for the year, for the summer. We saw year one, the movie starring Jack Black and Michael Sarah. It was a comedy. It was a caveman comedy. Um, a little different than the caveman, uh, the Geico caveman, though. They weren't as cavemen-y as a Geico caveman. Like, they didn't really go all out. Like, <clears throat> there's pretty much just Jack Black and Michael Sarah wearing, um, what do you call it? Like, those, uh, regs, basically. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was okay. Not, not that funny, but not too many memories from it. Paul Rudd was in it. We talked about it. Episode... Uh, four. Yeah, it was pretty much just Jack Black and Michael Sarah dressed like the Flintstones. I'd say. I can't think of the name. There's a special name for the like the caveman rag that you wear, but it's okay. Rags the riches, caveman story. <laughs> caveman. That's like a good name for like a caveman um memoir. Rag rags the riches. Wait, I gotta check what that is now. Caveman. Loincloth. See, I thought of it. I didn't even have to. Didn't even have to check it. Right when I was about to Google it, they could a caveman memoir. Uh, loincloths to riches. I think I think I'm gonna have to write that down. Loincloths to riches. I think that's like a good caveman memoir. But yes, this is the most we've talked about uh, cavemen since we've talked about the AMC triple feature. Loin claws to riches. I think that's solid. Icy blue sky, baby. Oh, yes. And um, I still love my idea of breakfast on a boat. So I want to make that happen. Along with uh, frozen yogurt in a yurt. Make a fro-yurt. A fro-yurt business. Um, yes. So that was year one. Good, good. Um, after that, we ventured on over we hadn't got enough movie for the day so we snuck in to the hangover walked over to the other side of the movie theater um past the guard dogs past the uh, dobermans and yeah we made it we made it into the hangover one of the funniest movies of all time talked about it episode three brody stevens you got it um yes 
positive energy. You got it. Um, yeah, The Hangover was awesome. I don't know what else I can say about it, but if you haven't seen it, you gotta watch it. And after that, we still had not got enough movie for the day, so we went over right across the aisle to watch Land of the Lost. Uh, we talked about that episode one, Will Ferrell episode, the very first episode of Stars Born. Um, yes, Will Ferrell could not even save this movie. Uh, this remake of a 1970s TV show, kind of a sci-fi adventure, just didn't make any sense. Maybe you had to see the TV show to understand, but I just remember like not laughing, being confused, thinking that, why is Will Ferrell not being... I mean, he was trying. Like Will Ferrell always goes all out, even if the script doesn't bring it. If the script isn't there, Will Ferrell will... Tried twice as hard, but still. I love that SNL sketch where he's just like, the one where he's yelling about the shed. He's like, it's just all he does the whole sketch is like, he's like, get get off the shed. Get off that shed. <laughs> he's just yelling, and there's like, you can't see the shed. It's off camera. So he's just yelling at someone off camera to get off a shed, and it's so funny. But yeah, I talked about, um, the Will Ferrell best of Saturday Night Live that I got two volumes of it sitting right over here. Um, yeah, two DVDs for you people who still use DVDs. They're not even Blu-rays. But yeah, we talked about those episode one, the very first episode of A Star's Born. So cool. Let's get. I think now before we, before I tell you about the Angelina Jolie movie that was a cliffhanger that I liked let's just go ahead and let's just read one more chapter of Night Hoops because I love this book so much um, the Carl Duker book thank you Mr. Duker for writing this awesome book here we go uh, chapter 3 Monday at PE Mr. Shelley announced that for the next few weeks we'd be playing a basketball tournament then he named me as one of the six captains that pumped me up because it meant he knew that I'd been a player in junior high. And if he knew about me, then Coach O'Leary, the varsity head coach, knew about me too. We used a beauty contest method for picking teams. I picked Luke first. After that, I got Leo Defen- Leo Defencenzi and Casey Russell, both of whom were okay players and old Kane Park buddies. The last guy was somebody whose name I didn't know, an uncoordinated kid who had some size. Shelley went over the rules for the tournament. Basic stuff. Call your own fouls. Captains settle arguments. Then, right before the game started, Coach O'Leary came out of the coach's office and took a seat on a folding chair under the scoreboard. O'Leary was huge, 6'6", and probably close to 300 pounds of muscle and fat. He had thinning red hair and a freckled face and arms. His voice went with his body, a booming voice that filled whatever room he was in and the one next to it. I once watched him order a sandwich at Safeway. Ah, put a couple more slices on there, buddy, will ya? O'Leary thundered. The deli man laughing obliged with about another half pound of salami. This was my chance to slow, to show O'Leary exactly what I could do. Then came the kick in the face. The team we were playing had Trent Dawson on it. As soon as Dawson saw the matchup, he pointed to me. I'll take Nick Abbott. I figured he'd really take me, found me hard and often. 
My heart raced. What could I do? If I let him run me, run over me, he'd make me look like a clown in front of O'Leary. But if I called him for fouling me, I'd run the risk of having him come after me again. And I didn't want that. The amazing thing is, I never had to decide. Not that Trent didn't play hard, because he did. He had deceptive stutter-step dribble, was fast on his feet and with his hands, and dived after every loose ball as if it were a million-dollar bill. When I challenged him by driving to the basket, he made me pay with hard fouls, but I did the same to him. What he didn't do was give me the elbow and the gut or the forearm to the chest that were his trademarks. With under a minute left, we were down by one. The whole game I'd been feeding Luke, and he'd been filling the hoop. But I remembered what my dad had said about crunch time, and I took the game into my hands. I was dribbling at the top of the key, keeping the ball out of Trent's reach. With my eyes, I showed Luke where I wanted the screen. He set it on Trent's right. Trent felt him there and anticipated my move in that direction. So I faked that way and went the other way. Trent got his feet tangled. I was in the clear for a pull-up jumper from just outside the free-throw line. No doubt about it. Swish right in the heart. Shelly, standing in the corner of the gym, blew his whistle. That's it, gentlemen. Shower up. As I head to the locker room, Coach O'Leary crossed over to me. You're Scott Abbott's brother, right? Yeah, I'm Nick Abbott. Well, that was nice clutch shooting at the end there, Nick. Real nice. Thanks, Coach, I asked. Try not to smile. Thanks a lot. After school, Luke came over to shoot around. He was as pumped as I was. I wonder how many of my pretty jumpers O'Leary saw fall through the net. Quite a few because of all those pretty assists I fed you. He laughed. You don't get an assist unless I make the shot. Remember that, Mr. Point Guard. You need me. We shot around a little, and then I asked him if he wanted to go one-on-one. He shook his head. No more of that for a while. Why not? You know what this so-called basketball tournament really is. It's a tryout. That's what it is. That's why Coach, That's why O'Leary was there today, why he's going to be there every day. The guy will be watching every gym class, picking out his team, so we better work on some two-man games, screen and rolls, lot passes over the top, that sort of stuff. We caught his eye today. Now we've got to make sure we keep it. For the next hour, we worked at getting in sync. When, we pl- when you play point guard, it's not enough to hit a guy with a pass. You've got to hit him so he's, he's in rhythm so that he can dribble or shoot without a moment's hesitation, without the slightest fumbling for the ball. To do that, you've got to know exactly where he wants the ball and exactly when he wants it. And you've got to have the right amount of zip on the ball, too. You can't be knocking the guy down or making him wait. The timing has to be perfect, and perfect takes practice. After an hour of law passes and skip passes off imaginary pick and rolls, we needed a break. I went inside and brought out a liter of Pepsi. We sat on the back steps and passed the bottle back and forth. The Pepsi was cold and sweet going down. That Dawson is a pretty good ball player, Luke said. I took a long swig. Yeah, he's tough. He's the only guy out there besides you and me who has a chance to make the varsity. I laughed. Trent Dawson? He won't turn out for the team. No way. Luke took the Pepsi from me. He played pretty hard for someone who's not interested. My mother's car pulled up. She smiled and waved hello, then went inside. Luke and I were just getting ready to shoot again when the back door popped open. I'm sorry, Luke. You're going to have to go home now. I need to talk to Nick. Luke's eyebrows raised. He could hear the anger in Mom's voice, see it in her face. Tomorrow, Nick, he said. 
I'd barely made inside when Mom started waving a piece of paper in front of my nose. What is this, young man? What is this? I don't know, I answered. I can't even see it. She thrust the paper in, into my face. All right, see it. Bothell High sends home midterm grades. They don't really count for anything. They're sort of a preview of coming attractions. What was coming for me was a horror film. Four Ds, she fumed, her eyes wide with shock. Four, and in all your important classes, English, history, science, math. I'll start studying, I mumbled. Don't worry. You bet you'll start, young man. From now on, when my car pulls into the driveway, Luke goes home, and you go upstairs and hit the books. But, Mom, no buts. You're lucky I'm letting you shoot around at all. If you spend a quarter of your time and energy on schoolwork that you do on basketball, you'd have straight A's. Ooh, I'm picturing for his mom, I'm picturing um the mom from Malcolm in the Middle. I don't know. I don't know who, who you guys are picking. Maybe Claire from Modern Family. No, for some reason I was picturing the. I don't know her name. Let's look at her name. I think it's Patricia. Malcolm in the Middle. One of my favorite shows. I say that about like every show and movie, but I'm serious though. Malcolm in the Middle is a classic. I just want to give a shout out to the mom because the mom is one of the funniest people in it too. Jane Kazer Kazmarek. Jane Kazmarek. She plays Lois. Same as Family Guy. Except she's... I think she's like more of a temper than Lois from Family Guy. Um, let's just let's just keep going here. I'm having so much fun reading. I love Night Hoops. This, reading this book is bringing back so many good memories of just Bothell. Because this book's about my hometown. And it's about basketball. And I love it. So here we go. Chapter 4. I stomped up to my room, but when I cooled off, I had to admit she was right. I did have to bring my grades up to C's or I wouldn't be playing on any team, varsity or junior varsity. When I broke the news to Luke the next day, he shrugged, saying, Won't matter. In two weeks, daylight savings time ends. It'll be too dark to shoot. Hoops much past five anyway. The good thing was that our PE games kept going great. We were winning almost all of them, right under the eye of Coach O'Leary. Coach O'Leary! Uh, the only team that gave us a battle was Trent's, and it really wasn't his team. It was him. It was hard to get in a flow when Trent was guarding me. Sometimes I'd be so worn down by his constant pressure that I'd get rid of the ball too soon, putting Defenchenzi in the role of a playmaker, a role he couldn't handle. Or Other times I'd get caught up in the one-on-one -on -one challenge and try to do too much on my own. That frustrated Luke. He clapped his hands together, meaning, get me the ball, get me the ball. Saturday morning, Dad called. Mom had made me promise I'd stay that morning, but when he said he wanted to spend the day with Scott and me, she relented. No television tonight, though, she said. I waited for Dad in the front room. Not Scott, though. He stayed downstairs in the den with Mom. While I checked over the sports page, I could hear the two of them arguing. The pickup pulled into the driveway. The truck door opened and slammed shut. I opened the front door as Dad, smiling ear to ear, came up to the porch steps and into the house. Hey, Nick, he said, first shaking my hand and then pulling me to him. What's up? Not much, I answered. He then he let go of me and we stood looking at each other as Scott, with my mother behind him, came up the stairs and into my room. My, my father nodded to him, smiled, but there was no hug, no handshake even. 
How are you, son? He asked, his voice formal. I'm doing fine, Scott replied. How about you? Can't complain, can't complain. The four of us stood awkwardly until Dad spoke again. I've got nothing big planned. I thought we'd just hang out together, the three of us. Maybe shoot some hoops in the backyard, then bike the Burke Gilman. What do you say? I can't, Scott answered. Katya's coming over. You think maybe you could cancel that? Dad asked. Scott shook his head. We need to work on some songs. For a moment, Dad was silent. Then a false cheeriness came to his voice and face. Well, if you can't, you can't. He turned to me. How about you, Nick? Does that sound like a plan? Um, you bet. And now was my voice that so was too happy. All right, then let's go shoot around. I bought a new ball. Mom spoke. I'm going to be out most of the day, Nick, so take your key in case no one's here when you get back. Okay, I said, realizing for the first time that Dad no longer had a key to our house and never would have one again. Dad's new basketball was one of those outdoor balls that felt feel like leather but hold up on asphalt. It felt nice in my hand, and I was stroking the jumper from everywhere. Dad was praising me, too, telling me how good my game looked. Even when I told him about my grades, he only shrugged. You'll pull those up. You're a smart kid. It should have been fun, and it would have been, only we could hear Scott and then Scott and Katya practicing. I don't know the name of the song they were playing. Something by Miles Davis, probably, because Scott was always talking about Miles Davis. Whatever it was, it was about the saddest song in the world. Sometimes I'd say something, and Dad wouldn't answer at all. We'd been playing about an hour when Steve Clay appeared at the back gate. My father invited him into the backyard. It's holding up great, Dad declared. His eyes scanned the court. No cracks, the support straight as an arrow. It does look good, Steve Clay answered, proud of the work he'd done. I took a shot, missed, and the ball bounded to him. He caught it, but instead of shooting or passing, he held it. Listen, if I can get Trent to come over, would you be interested in a little two-on-two? Sure, Dad answered eagerly, without even asking me. Steve Clay smiled broadly. Great, I'll go get him. As soon as he left the yard... I turned on Dad. What did you do that for? I don't want Trent here. He shrugged. Why not? It'll be fun. I'm sick of Trent Dawson. I have to play against him in PE all the time. Stop complaining, Nick. We'll kick their butts and that'll make you feel better. I didn't say anything more, but inside I was seething. All I'd wanted was to spend one day with Dad. Just one day. And instead I was going to spend a good part of it with Trent Dawson. Then the unexpected. Steve Clay returned without Trent. He leaned over the gate and called to us. Trent's gone off somewhere with Zach. Sorry. His dad nodded. Some other time then. It was lunchtime, so we loaded my bike in the back of the truck and drove to the ranch drive-in, where we had burgers and fries. Then we biked all the way to Matthews Beach on the Burke Trail. On the way back, we saw Trent on the railroad trestle with Zach and Zach's friends. They were smoking cigarettes, drinking beer, and throwing rocks at the ducks swimming in the slough. Oh, man, the slough. That's what we call the uh, Sammamish River. The river that runs uh, through Bothell, down uh, right by the Burke Gilman Trail, um, by Bothell Landing. Um, I love how they, how Carl Duker, Mr. Duker, gave a shout-out to Ranch Drive-In. I like how he uses, like, real-life things. Like, the Berkeley Trail is a real thing. Matthews Beach, that's in, like, Shoreline, I believe. Um, the Ranch Drive-In, just right in downtown Bothell. Used to go there all the time. Burgers, 
milkshakes. Oh my gosh. They have like a walk-up window where you can order food. I love it. Throw the throw that bookmark in there. It's also giving me memories of just like shooting hoops with my dad and like when my dad used to take me to like a baseball field with a bucket of balls and just like pitch them to me and I would just take batting practice. Those are some of my favorite things to do. Or, oh man, especially playing football in the snow. I love playing football in the snow. I mean, I talked to you guys about when I I did that with Greg Williams. I remember doing that. But I definitely played catch with my dad in the snow recently. And I remember just like sliding down the hill in our front yard while I was catching it. <laughs> I think that was during Thanksgiving, actually. Good times, good times. This past Thanksgiving... I spent a lot of time reading that um, Guys Can Be Cat Ladies too, the uh, Michael Showalter book that we've been reading a lot of. I'm not going to read any of it right now, but that's my memory associated with that book is this past Thanksgiving, just reading it, uh, listening to some Adam Carolla podcasts, um, drinking some, I think I was drinking cider during the day, watching football, playing ping pong with my dad. Man, I'll play ping pong with anyone. <laughs> I'm a ping pong hound. Um, I need to join like a club or something. Uh, let's see. Yeah, and then also this past Thanksgiving, watching the uh, Macy's Day Thanksgiving parade with my mom at night in a Bad Bunny. Definitely remember Bad Bunny, the rapper. He was a star that prayed. Um, let's see. Here we go. 19, we're back on Angelina Jolie's IMDb here. We left you. It was the cliffhanger, the movie that I really like. But I still don't think I've seen the whole thing, though. Because this was one of those John Cusack movies I fell asleep during. Pushing Tin, 1999. She plays Mary Bell. This is the uh, John Cusack and Billy Bob Thornton one where they're uh, air traffic controllers who are competing against each other. And Billy Bob Thornton wears a feather in his in his hair. It's really he's really cool. <laughs> I'm I'm serious though. It sounds like I'm being sarcastic, but nobody plays cool like Billy Bob. Bad Santa. Talk about bad air traffic control. Good air traffic controller. <laughs> bad Santa. Such a such a cool look though for air traffic controller. Have a feather in his. Feather in his hair. A feather in his cap. I like it. Um, and then at the end of the movie, when they're just randomly in Colorado, like skipping rocks, and they're like fishing on in a stream for some reason. Just completely... I mean, that's the part that I woke up at. So I guess that's why I thought it was random. Because <laughs> I guess anything would be random if you're watching a movie for the first 10 minutes and then you fall asleep for two hours. And then wake up for the last 10 minutes. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> I was like, how did they get here? How did they end up in Colorado? What? And there's like a bear or something. There's a grizzly bear. Come on, John Cusack. Save Billy Bob. Um, 1999. Oh, speaking of Billy Bob and Angelina Jolie. They were... What, they used to be married? Let's see when they were married. You guys work for TMZ and you already know this off the top of your head, then you're yelling at your phone. 
don't get too mad. Um, let's see. When was Angelina Jolie? When was Angelina Jolie married to Billy Bob? 2000 to 2003. Wow, that was a short one. And then she was with Brad Pitt from married 2014, separated 2016. She was definitely with Brad Pitt for earlier than that, though. And she was with Johnny Lee Miller uh, from... 1996 to 2000. Johnny Lee Miller is the uh, British actor best known for playing Sick Boy in Train Spotting. I remember watching Train Spotting for the first time in a cinema class. Like one of my favorite classes of all time I've ever taken was this movie class at Western, Western Washington University in Bellingham. We got to watch movies in class. Uh, we got to make movies on our own. And I was just like in a group. It was cool because f- a couple of my friends or my buddy. All right, I think Chris Solar was in it. Um, I think Steve was in it, who would be one of my future roommates. And then I think a, a few of Chris, um, Chris Solar's suite mates, because he lived in a suite with, let's see, his roommate and then six other dudes so it was they all shared a bathroom in the middle and then their four rooms all like had a different they're all a different quadrant you know but um yeah so there's a bunch of people I knew in that class and we were all in a group we all got to make a movie I remember making a movie with um like nerf guns just running around campus with nerf guns that was so much fun (laughs) it's funny nowadays maybe no, you could still do it now. No, it's just Nerf guns. Um, let's see. Angelina Jolie. Yes, I was looking at who she was married to, of course. 1999. Angelina Jolie plays Amalia Donaghy. Hey, it kind of rhymes. Angelina Jolie, Amalina Donaghy. In The Bone Collector. This was the... Uh, Denzel movie. We talked about this episode nine. Um, a quadriplegic ex-homicide detective and his female partner try to track down a serial killer who is terrorizing New York City. 118 minutes crime drama mystery. Rate R. Um, let's see. That's a great name. That's like a wrestler name. A name for a WWE wrestler. Maybe like a middle linebacker. The Bone Collector. Girl Interrupted, 1999. She plays Lisa. What is that one? That one sounds familiar too. Based on writer Susanna Kaysen's account of her 18th month stay at a mental hostel in the 1960s. 127 minutes. Biography drama. So it's kind of like a prequel to split I guess I mean I don't know if she has the uh, split personalities or whatever but hmm sounds that sounds really interesting Gone in 60 Seconds that's a uh, Nicolas Cage one she plays Sarah Sway Wayland Sarah Sway Wayland Sway that's a cool nickname Yes, Nicholas Cage talked about this, what, episode 7? 
A retired master car thief must come back to the industry and steal 50 cars with his crew in one night to save his brother's life. Yes, I do remember reading that plot. And then I remember thinking that's like such a ridiculous plot. But it's it's like Nicolas Cage wrote it, I think I said. Which is, I still think that. Um, Let's see, 2001. Ooh, this is what she's most well known for. I would say this is what she's most known for. Let's let's leave that a cliffhanger. Let's read a little bit of Now I Can Die in Peace. This is um Bill Simmons. We checked out a ton of Bill Simmons stuff. We went through all 12 volumes of Grantland from his uh, ESPN website. But this is the New York Times bestseller. Oh my gosh. Once again, an, another New York Times bestseller. Just brings it it just brings him joy to my heart because Makes me picture one of my books becoming a New York Times bestselling. Oh my gosh. I want to just be able to put that in front of my name. New York Times bestselling author, Chris Arneson. Has a good ring to it, you know. Throw that stamp up there on top of a sponge cake. I still think we should do Sponge Cake the movie. I talked about that like a few episodes back. How I, I wanted to bring the movement, Sponge Cake the movie. I think that should be a thing. Um, but this is Now I Can Die in Peace, Bill Simmons, How ESPN Sports Guy Found Salvation with a Little Help from Nomar, Pedro, Shawshank, and the 2004 Boston Red Sox. So this is Bill Simmons. Uh, he's the Boston sports guy. He's obsessed with Boston sports teams. And this is like a bunch of articles um, from the time leading up to when the Red Sox won the World Series in 2004. And um and yeah, and then Boston became Title Town. But I was a huge fan of Bill Simmons. Uh probably I definitely didn't know who he was in two thousand four. But maybe like I'd say I found out about him like oh five or oh six, so a long time ago. And I've been a fan of him ever since. I mean I haven't read I haven't read as much of his recent stuff. But I don't think he writes as much anymore. I'll have to check it out though. I've been reading Love. Shea Serrano's columns for The Ringer. Uh, we talked about Shea Serrano's basketball and other things. That book. But um, Alright, anyway, we're talking about Bill Simmons right now. So here we go. Now I can die in peace. This article here is called Pedro Saves the Day from October 12th, 1999. I don't even know where to begin. Seriously, how would you start this column? In a three-day stretch loaded with great moments. Footnote. Down 2-0 in the playoffs against the Cleveland Indians. The Red Sox won games 3-4 and four at Fenway by a combined score of 32-10, to 10, followed by a 12-8 win in Game 5. Now that is a comeback. Uh, my favorite part was watching the Red Sox celebrate in Cleveland last night. Over any other sport, baseball games have the most satisfying conclusion for, from a fan's standpoint. Your team gets a third out. The camera shows your pitcher with his arms raised. Your catcher bear hugs him, and they start dry humping like two old black labs in heat. The dugout guys sprint happily towards the mound, all looking like girls from my college whenever the soft-serve yogurt line opened on Wednesday at noon. They switch to the close-up of the most bummed-out guy on the other team, who usually has a couple of whiteheads. They show the white shot of the huge pig pile on the mound, as you hope that your winning pitcher doesn't get stampeded. They show the losing manager with that. Maybe I should put my house on the market face. 
They show the coaches and managers in the winning dugout shaking hands and trying to act calm, uh, like calm adults, and so on. It's a wonderful thing, all of it. Boston fans watched it happen with the Mets in 86, the A's in 88 and 90, the Indians in 95 and 98, and it's a sickening feeling when you're on the other side. We were due. We were due. We needed a reason to celebrate, and the great Pedro Martinez provided it. Here's what struck me. The ending of Game 5 actually made me a little emotional. Geez, I thought that side of me had been killed off long ago. Maybe it was Magic Johnson's skyhook that did it. Maybe it was Peter Klima's scoring on his third shift in the triple overtime, or Rulon Jones sacking Tony Eason in the end zone in 87. Maybe it was Stanley's wild pitch, or Clemens never doing quite enough, or filling the Red Sox reliever, giving up the big hit at the wrong time. Maybe it was the Bruins always falling one goal, one sniper, and about $10 million short of when it mattered most. Um... Maybe it was Mark Price and Bill Lambeer making those two, making those day or jumpers at the Garden during Bird's final two seasons. Maybe it was that kickoff right down the middle to Desmond Howard. Um, footnote: Did you notice how in the first few columns of this book I spent an inordinate amount of time rehashing ha- unhappy Boston sports memories? We all carried scars from 1986 to 98, and at the time of this column, nobody cared about the Bruins. Pete Carroll had ruined the Pats and Patino was ruining the Celtics, who weren't even playing because of the 99 lockout. Throwing it in the socks in their tortured history, well, that's why I spent a paragraph after the happiest Red Sox game in 13 years rehashing unhappy things. Who knows? When I saw my team jumping all over one another and spraying champagne in the dugout, it put a hallmark-sized lump in my throat. Honest to God, you see these people celebrating who feel like you know, so you feel who you feel like you know, so you feel like you're a part of it. I watched Brian Daubach pour pouring champagne on teammates and thought to myself, there's a guy who's been to hell and back, and he deserves it. I watched Sabes celebrating and never considered this double stink bomb in games two and five, but those ten gutty wins during the season when his body was always one slider away from giving out, and so on down the line. Unlike any other sport, The baseball season resembles a running soap opera, peaks and valleys, trials and tribulations, raging subplots, likable stars, and memorable cliffhangers. When you stick with a team for six months and everything culminates in a champagne party, it it feels pretty damn good, even if you aren't covered in bubbly. The Cleveland series showcased every likable quality about the 1999 Red Sox. Sometimes they were were a two-man team, other times they were a 25-man team. Regardless, someone was always carrying the load. All season, my New York friends dismissed him with comments like, Brian Daubach's your number three hitter, and who's your closer again? Charlie Sheen? But those no-names, same no-names, provided every, proved everyone wrong over these last three games. Lewis, Stanley, Veritek, and Nixon and Daubach all came through at various times. Valentine had 12 RBI in the last three games and made up for his putrid, lifeless, decrepit regular season. Footnote, in a running diary during Game 4, I wrote that Valentine's improbable October resurgence was the Boston sports equivalent of O.J. Simpson finding the real killers. (laughs) Okay, one second, this is me. Uh, Brief intermission here. That just reminds me, that was my favorite kind of things that Bill Simmons would write, were these things called running diaries. 
when he would watch like a sports game, um, just like a Red Sox game or Patriots or Celtics, and he would, let's see, so he would do timestamps, so like 5.05 and 5.07, 5.10, and then next to each one there would be like a little, like couple sentences. So pretty much every few minutes he'd he'd make another entry and um yeah, just talk about how he's feeling throughout the game, if he was stressing out if they're losing, or if it's like a playoff game or something really important. But I just loved reading those running diaries because it's such like a roller coaster of emotions for, for Bill Simmons because that's another thing I love about his writing is it made a huge impact on the way I write and how I became a writer because like how emotionally invested he is in in his teams and in his fandom he's just like incredibly he just cares about so much and you could tell like in the way he writes that it's super personal for him and I just love that like very personal style of writing so um yeah that that definitely made like an imprint on how I do it and I also I would love to do like a I need to start doing running diaries. I'm going to write that down. Uh, running. Because <laughs> that's like something I could do. I would love to do a running diary for like a, some blog posts. Maybe put them in some future books then. Do one for like big games, like big Mariners games. <laughs> if Mariners, next time the Mariners play a big game. Um, maybe like a Seahawks game or. Yeah, running diaries are really, it's really fun to read too. It's very like fan friendly, very uh, reader friendly. Because, I don't know, just for me, it's like a very pleasing format, the aesthetic of it, like how it's laid out, how all the times are listed on the far left. Just, I like reading it that way. And it's interesting if you also watch the sporting, if you watch the game, then it's like, it's fun to see what he was thinking about it compared to what you were thinking. All right, here we go. Back to the reading. O'Leary turned into Dave Henderson Jr. in Game 5. Offerman kept working the count and stroking those line drives, a true leadoff hitter in every sense. The under underappreciated Real Cormier held the fort in Game 4 for an overworked bullpen. Ramon Martinez came up mammoth in Game 3 like we knew he would. And Derek Lowe saved the series with clutch relief work in that same game. Some of the people who weren't above the list on the above list. Butch Husky did squat. Scott Hadberg barely played. Saves was hit harder and more frequently than a stolen ATM card. Wakefield was inept. So was Kent Merker, Rod Beck, and Flash didn't do much. The Blair Wasden project. Uh footnote. That was my nickname for John Wasden, who was so scary to watch you ended up standing in the corner facing the wall like the about-to-die characters at the end of the Blair Witch Project. Hey, it made sense at the time. <laughs> That's funny. Um, was simply terrifying, yet the team rolled on. They always roll on. Uh, best of all, Nomar and Pedro came through when it mattered. No way Boston captures Game 5 unless two things happen. Nomar belts a home run in the first inning, forcing Cleveland to intentionally walk him those two fateful times. One for Troy O'Leary's Grand Slam. Coach O'Leary. Um, Troy O'Leary's Grand Slam. The other for his three-run home run. Uh, Pedro slams the door from the fourth inning on. So all 25 guys pitched in. Some shined more than others, and the two money guys came through when it counted most. 
That was the Cleveland series in a nutshell. That was the 99 series season in a nutshell. Go figure. It certainly wasn't conventional. The Red Sox only had one starter past the fifth inning and scored 44 runs in the last three games, which jibed with the rest of the goofy season. And in the pantheon of happy Boston sports moments, Game 5 probably cracks the top 10 in my lifetime, and not just because no Boston team had advanced in the series since 1986, or the team had lost 18 of 19 playoff games before winning these last three. This was a game that could have been simulcast in classic sports. What about, what about both intentional walks coming back to haunt Mike Hargrove? Um, oh, Mike Hargrove, uh, former Seattle Mayor's manager too. Um, to haunt Mike Hargrove, the first leading to the O'Leary grant, granny, the other leading to one of those few jump-out-of-your-seat screaming Red Sox moments of the past 25 years. What about the both teams might run out of decent pitchers threat hanging over everything or every terrifying Jim Tomey at bat or Pedro coming in for maybe one or two innings and throwing 97 pitches in an effing no-hitter over the final six innings. It's difficult to believe that someone could have overshadowed O'Leary, but Pedro cracked the pantheon for ballsiest, guttiest, greatest Boston performances from the past 25 years, right up there with John Havlicek finishing the 73 playoffs with a separated shoulder and Kevin McHale playing on a broken foot in the A7 playoffs. Footnote, Pedro's stats for the 99 playoffs were three games, 17 innings, Zero runs, five hits, five walks, 23 strikeouts. Uh, thanks to that aching shoulder, Pedro couldn't even have a long toss catch on Saturday. 48 hours later, he was throwing 97 pitches in 50-degree weather with a terrifying, this could be the one that makes Pedro wince and sends Joe Kerrigan sprinting from the dugout, aura hanging over every pitch, a feeling vaguely reminiscent of Terry Glenn catching a deep pass and getting gang-tackled but multiplied by 100. At one point in the seventh inning, my father and I had the following exchange. Dad, I can't take this anymore. I think I'm going to have a heart attack. Me, can you wait until after the game? <laughs> now factor this in. Boston had given up 32 runs in 34 innings since Pedro left game one with pain in his back. Footnote, here's how scary that pitching staff was. In game four, with the Sox leading 15-2 to in the fifth inning, you didn't even feel remotely safe. This was the season when Pat Rapp, Mark Portugal, Jin Ho Cho, and Brian Rose combined started to combine 78 games, and Tim Wakefield was used as a closer for half the season. Other than Pedro, nobody finished with more than 10 wins or 150 innings pitched. Did you ever think a team could win 94 games using 25 pitchers in all? It happened. That's a lot of pitchers. Uh, when he returned, the Indians didn't even get another hit, much less another run. Unbelievable. For his first two innings, he was throwing semi-sidearm, avoiding the high heaters and struggling with control that wasn't up to the normal Pedro standards. Gradually, you could see him finding a rhythm and settling into an effective mix of change-ups, curveballs, cut fastballs, and intermittent fastballs. You could see on the faces of the Indians' batters, they were done. Even better, their fans knew it. By the eighth inning, you couldn't hear a peep in Jacobs Field. I don't even remember seeing one person transform a baseball game or a series like that before. For six innings, Pedro turned into Kaiser Sose. 
So the Red Sox may have ended their prolonged playoff drought, but Pedro accomplished something far greater than that. To crack the Boston Pantheon, it doesn't just take 23 wins and a Cy Young or 17 strikeouts and a one-hitter at Yankee Stadium. You need one or two of those moments to earn your keep. You need to come through when it matters most, when you're the only, the only hope left, when the fate of the season rests squarely on your shoulders. You need to vanquish your opponent, destroy them, break their will. You need to resonate with people. Pedro Martinez did all of those things that last night. His teammates lifted him on their shoulders when it was over, and it was a beautiful thing. Bring on the Yankees. The world will now destruct in 30 seconds. <laughs> um, yeah, that also reminded me. So yeah, that's the end of that. That reminded me of my column that I wrote in November of 2016 for the Daily Evergreen that was definitely inspired by Bill Simmons' style of writing. Because, like he did that um, short exchange with his dad there, his dad said, I can't take this anymore, I think I'm going to have a heart attack. And then Bill Simmons said, can you wait until after the game? Um, that just, that influenced my column that I wrote about the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series. Because I did a cool, um, I thought it was cool. I used um, the group text that I was in with my dad, with my dad and brother and uncle and cousins. Um, yeah, we we're all in the group text because they're all Cubs fans pretty much. I mean, not my brother, but like my dad and his brother are. And same with my cousins, I think. So, yeah, I used that um, group text as a kind of a format for that for that column. Uh, you guys can probably find that at dailyevergreen.com if you want, in my archive. Um, yeah, there you go. That's just an example. Those are just a couple examples of how big of an influence Bill Simmons was on my writing and uh, my writing style. Um, I think the people that you read when you're when you're in your adolescent years, they have a big influence on like who you become as a person. I mean, you don't even have to be a creative person. They can just change who you are. But I think it definitely matters. Let's see. 2001, Angelina Jolie. This is the one that she's known for. Laura Croft. Tomb Raider. Tomb Raider. Um, video game adventurer Laura Croft comes to life in a movie where she races against time and villains to recover powerful ancient artifacts. Wait, so was this a video game before? Is this saying it was a video game first? I did not know that. 100 minutes, action, adventure, fantasy. PG-13. And her dad is in it as well, John Voigt. Um, I don't think I've seen that. Maybe, maybe a long time ago. 2001, Original Sin. She plays Julia Russell. Slash Bonnie Castle. I like the name Bonnie Castle better. I think she should go with that one. Uh, 2002. Life or something like it. She plays Lainey Kerrigan. Um, let's see what that one's about. That looks kind of interesting. I like the title. The title caught my attention. It's 103 minutes. PG-13. Rom-com. A reporter interviews a psychic who tells her that she's going to die and her life is meaningless. What? That's crazy. What a crazy 
plot for a movie and delightful sounds like sounds like a delight um corn did my time the band corn she plays laura croft uncredited video short from 2003 speaking of laura croft she plays laura croft in laura croft tomb raider the cradle of life 2003 also in 03 beyond borders she plays sarah jordan in 04, she plays Eliana in Taking Lives. That's, I like that name, Eliana. It's fun to say. Eliana. I feel like that'd be a fun name to yell. Like if you're like yelling at your, like your kids are playing outside or something in the cul-de-sac, playing stickball in the cul-de-sac. You're yelling at them to come in for dinner. Eliana. Eliana. Yeah, that'd be a fun name to yell. <laughs> Eliana, <laughs> come in for dinner. Just, I just imagine like an old, just an old-fashioned mom with an apron just yelling, Eliana. Just not even going outside though. She just opens the window. Like there's a window in front of the kitchen sink and she just opens it and yells out of it. Doesn't even go outside. Eliana. Lasagna's ready. <laughs> okay. Um, 2004, Shark Tale. She's the voice of Lola. 2004, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. What is that? She plays Frankie. I think this is a kid's movie. PG, 106 minutes. Action, adventure, mystery. After New York City receives a series of attacks from giant flying robots... A reporter teams up with the pilot in search of their origin, as well as the reason for the disappearances of famous sciences, scientists around the world. Jude, Jude Law is in it. Gwyneth Paltrow's in it. Giovanni Ribisi. Giovanni Ribisi. Um, that sounds pretty interesting. Giant flying robots. I like that. That sounds like a Pacific Rim meets. What's what's that one movie? Uh, Inspector Gadget. For some reason, that reminded me of Inspector Gadget. Giovanni Ribisi, two thousand four, The Fever. She plays revolutionary. Two thousand four, Alexander. She plays Olympias. Oh, here's another big one. This one might she might be best known for too. Oh five, Mister and Mrs. Smith. She plays Jane Smith. Um, actually, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is when her and Brad Pitt got together, if I'm not mistaken. But wasn't she married to... Wait, let's go back to Angelina Jolie. Back to her Wikipedia. Okay, no, she was only married to Billy Bob till 03. So, yeah, I think she was with Brad Pitt since, um, this movie. I'm pretty sure that's when they got together. Let's see. Maybe this can tell us. Um, personal, man, she has a, Wikipedia has a lot to say about, she had fallen in love with Pitt during the filming of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, yep, Jolie was involved in a, oh, this was apparently a well-publicized Hollywood scandal when she was accused, I wonder if this was pre-TMZ, TMZ would have been all over this, um, this was like Christmas Day for TMZ. She was accused of having caused 
the divorce of actors Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston in October of 2005. And she fell in love with Brad Pitt during the filming of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Wow, that's so Hollywood Hollywood drama. Um, PG-13, two hours, action, comedy, crime. A bored married couple is surprised to learn that they are both assassins hired by competing agencies to kill each other. <laughs> Vince Vaughn's in it. Adrian, Adam Brody. Kerry Washington. Keith David. That's a delightful plot, too. Um, let's see. That's, that's like a really like neat plot. Like, very well packaged. It's like almost too cute. Almost seems implausible. Um, 2006, The Good Shepherd. She plays Margaret Clover Russell. 2007, A Mighty Heart plays Marianne. 2007, let's see what A Mighty Heart is. That sounds like a, it's a biography, drama, history. Rated R, 108 minutes. Marianne Pearl embarks on a frantic search to locate her journalist husband, Daniel, when he goes missing in Pakistan. Pakistan. Um, okay. This is like kind of before that, um. What was the name of that? This is something that happened in fall of 2018. There was a very famous journalist who got like beheaded or something. He he was, I can't, he was somewhere in the Middle East. I think it's, I think he was like an NPR journalist, but it was a huge story in the news. It's when I was working for uh, lawns, mowing lawns in Seattle, and when I would drive into Seattle in the morning like the 45-minute drive or whatever from Bothell, I'd listen to NPR sometimes. And they talked about this. MP- I think it was a NPR journalist. Yeah, I think it was Oko- Okoji. Here, let's let's see. Um, um, o- I, I don't know, Okoji. Let's just let, let go. <laughs> Apologies to... Sorry for your loss to... To his family. Uh, 2007. Yeah, where were we? Where was Lorraine Neeson? 2007. Beowulf. Um, Grendel's mother. Wait, were we done with? Yeah, we were done with that. Um, 08, Kung Fu Panda. Jamal Okoji. I think that's his name. I'm still thinking about that reporter. I feel like we have to give him like a shout out now. Um, I don't want to like search like. Jamal Khashoggi. Yep, that was it. Let's see. Let's see what happened with Jamal Khashoggi. Now we got to know. Uh, Jamal Khashoggi, this happened. Um, he was a Saudi Arabian descendant, author, columnist for the Washington Post, and a general manager and editor-in-chief of Al Arab News Channel. And he was assassinated at the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul, October 2nd, 2018, by agents of the Saudi government. Yeah, this was like huge news. Especially in NPR. Um, 
Khashoggi fled Saudi Arabia in September 2017 and went into self-imposed exile. He said that Saudi Arabian government had banned him from Twitter, and he later wrote newspaper articles critical of the Saudi government. Khashoggi had been sharply critical of Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and the country's king, Salman of Saudi Arabia. He also opposed the Saudi Arabian-led intervention in Yemen. On October 2, 2018, Khashoggi entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to obtain documents related to his planned marriage, but was never seen leaving. Amid news reports claiming that he had been killed and dismembered inside, an inspection of the consulate by Saudi Arabian and Tur Turkish officials took place on October 15th. Initially, the Saudi Arabian government denied the death, claiming Khashoggi had left the consulate alive, but on October 20th, admitted that Khashoggi was killed inside the consulate, claiming he had been strangled to death after a fight had broken out. This was later contradicted when October 25th, Saudi Arabia's Attorney General stated the murder was premeditated. On, October, on November 16th, the Washington Post other, and other news media reported that CIA had concluded Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered Khashoggi's assassination. On November 20th, this conclusion was disputed by President Trump, who stated that the investigation had to continue. Two days later, Trump again said the investigation did not conclude that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered the killing. On December 4th, senior senators from both the Republican and Democrat parties publicly contradicted Trump's equivocation. December 11, 2018, Jamal Khashoggi was named Time Magazine Person of the Year for his work in journalism, along with other journalists who faced political persecution for their work. Time Magazine referred to Khashoggi as a guardian of, of the truth. Wow. Yeah, so that's that story. There it is. That was highly talked about. I was in the news for a long time. In the uh, fall of 2018. Um... All right, so where did we leave off here? We left with Kung Fu Panda 2008, Tigress, the voice of. Oh, my gosh. This is a great movie. The Kung Fu Panda, the original one, Jack Black. Um, this is a good, it's not Pixar. It's animated, though. I think it's Disney. Let's see. The Dragon Warrior has a clash against the savage Tai Lung as China's fate hangs in the balance. However, the Dragon Warrior mantle is supposedly mistaken excuse me, mistaken to be bestowed upon an obese panda who is a novice in martial arts. And that obese panda is called Po and voiced by Jack Black. And Jack Black is hilarious. Dust, Dustin Hoffman has a voice in it too. 92 minutes, animation, adventure, and action. Surprises, comedy is not listed. Um, let's see, 2008. Oh, that also reminds me of, kind of reminds me of uh, Emperor's New Groove. I loved that movie growing up. Now we gotta, now we gotta find that one. Emperor, yep, there it is. From the year 2000, Wow. Only an hour and 18 minutes. It's a short one. Oh, wow. Patrick Warburton's in it. 
Um, and David Spade. Patrick Warburton's a David Putty from Seinfeld, and he's also in the what Rules of Engagement. Hey, hey, Patrick. Hey, man. What's up? Hey, why do I gotta do that? <laughs> That's my Patrick Warburton. Hey, man. What's up, man? Hey. <laughs> um, the Emperor's New Groove. Um, he's he. <laughs> That's David Putty, uh, Elaine's boyfriend. Um, so Emperor's New Groove. Emperor Cusco is turned into a llama by his ex-administrator Yzma and must now regain his throne with the help of Pacha, the gentle llama herder. Let me get a sip of... I haven't had a single sip of water. I haven't been playing by the rules here. The, the rules of podcasting where you have to stay hydrated. So let me grab a sip from my Red Robin's water bottle. Mm-mm. Gourmet burgers and brews. Um, yeah, maybe this is where my buddy Greg Williams got his AOL Instant Messenger uh, AIM screen name. It was uh, Llamas and Eggs. So maybe it's related to Emperor's New Groove. A super funny movie. Super funny movie. I haven't seen it for a while, though. Maybe it wouldn't hold up. I don't know. It was funny when I was... I don't know. I think I had a pretty good judgment of what was funny when when I was growing up. Because whenever I watched stuff that I thought was funny when I was like 11 years old, I still think it's funny nowadays. So, I don't know. I think taste and like that kind of like your palate for movies and foods. I think food palate can change more than like entertainment. Because like... I'm definitely more adventurous in what foods I'll try now than when I was a kid. Um, yeah, I'll I'll try pretty much any food now. I like trying new foods. I used to hate mustard. Now I love mustard. I probably didn't like pickles. Oh, I definitely used to hate pickles. And now I love pickles. I'll drink pickle juice. I like drinking pickle juice. And I hear it's healthy for you. So let's see. Maybe let's let's confirm. We can check, right? Um, pickle juice. I don't know. You guys ever drink pickle juice? It's delicious. You don't even have to. No, I, I don't. I'm not talking about Rick and Morty. We're not. That's what people think when you talk pickles. There's like Rick and Morty. Like my, I'm like, I don't. My roommates used to watch it, but I was never a big fan. Let's see. Um, pickle juice. It can help you lose weight. According to a study from Bioscience. Biotechnology and biochemistry, consuming vinegar, the main ingredient in pickle juice, every day can promote healthy weight loss. So they're saying you should drink pickle juice every day. That seems like a lot of pickle juice. I never buy it. I only drink it when we finish all the pickles in the jar. Um, is pickle juice good for your kidneys? While pickles and their juice byproduct typically contain small amounts of potassium, pickle juice is said to be a high-sodium food for chronic kidney disease patients. It is great for cramps if you drink pickle juice during or after dialysis. But don't overdo it. So there you go. It's um good for kidney. Is it bad to eat pickles every day? 
too much oil, salt, and preservatives can be harmful to your health. Several pickles are also high on sugar content, which may not be good for people who have diabetes. Eating too many pickles every day can also push your digestive system off track, causing abdominal discomfort, pain, and flatulence. Um, are pickles good for your gut? Probiotics are a very big deal when it comes to eating healthy. And naturally fermented foods like yogurt, kefir, kombucha, and pickles have tons of these good-for-your-gut bacteria. Yes, pickles, but only if, and this is a big if, they're cured with salt and not vinegar. Ooh, I like that. It is the salt episode, so it all comes back to salt. It all comes back to Angelina Jolie and salt. And, um, speaking of salt, I don't know about speaking of salt, but now is a good time for me to take a little break ski. I'm going to go to the bathroom, recharge, hydrate myself, and I will be right back. Hey, 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 I'm back. How was your break? Did you think about pickles? Maybe brainstorm what your favorite one is. Um, I like dill. I like the sandwich stacker ones. Um, I like the baby dill ones. Kosher, I think that's one of them. There's definitely, I like a variety of pickles for sure. Um, Here's something else. Kind of related to pickles here. Before we go back to AJ. A-Jolie. A-Jolie. This is kombucha. Uh, We've mentioned it. I just kind of wanted to do a little exploration deep dive on kombucha here. So here we go. It's a fermented, slightly alcoholic, lightly effervescent, sweetened black or green tea drink commonly intended as a functional beverage for supposed health benefits. So people, these health freaks are drinking this kombucha. They're pushing it. Um, These kombucha pushers... Sometimes the beverage is called kombucha tea to distinguish the name from kombucha, culture of bacteria and yeast. Ooh. Um, kombucha is produced by fermenting tea using a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. SCOBY, commonly called a mother or mushroom. The microbial populations in a SCOBY vary. Okay, this is like too, too scientific. Um... Let's see. It usually has less than half a percent of alcohol, of ABV. Um, It's cloudy as a color. I like that. I've never heard that as a color. What color is it? Cloudy. What's the weather? Rainy. Um, (laughs) Let's see. What's the history of it? What was it invented? The exact origins. Because you you guys know how I always want to know. I'm a... I'm one of those writer creative types who always wants to know what's the origins of this. How did where did this come from? So here we go. The origins are not known. Okay. Although Manchuria is commonly cited as a likely place of origin, it may have originated as recently as 200 years ago or as long as 2000 years ago. The drink is reported to have been consumed in East Russia as least as early as 1900 and from there entered Europe. Okay. And the etymology? The word kombucha is of uncertain etymology, but may be a, a case of a misapplied loan word from Japanese. 
What's a loan a loan word is um a word adopted from one language and incorporated into another without translation. So like chow bon appetit that's a loan word. Chow or aloha I guess those are loan words. Um cool. In Japanese the word the term kombucha a uh, kelp tea refers to completely different beverage, the kelp tea, um, made from dried and powdered kombu, an edible kelp from the Laminaria K, Laminaria C family. Um, yeah, I've never, but I talk about all this stuff, all this kombucha stuff. Let's see if there's flavors. Um, I've never tried it though. I've always been curious. I think you can get it at the store. Pretty sure you can find it at Safeway. But, um, I don't know if people make it, but I've heard about it. I'm gonna try it. That's my, that's one of my New Year's resolutions. I'm gonna try kombucha. <laughs> okay. Let's read a little bit more of. I'm having so much fun doing this. It's bringing back so many, such a flood of good memories, and I love it. So let's keep reading Night Hoops by Carl Duker. One more chapter. Just one more chapter. Chapter 5. Things settled into a routine. Every day after school, I chewed around with Luke until Mom drove up. As soon as she pulled up, pulled on the emergency brake, Luke would grab his sweatshirt, give me a wave goodbye, and I'd go upstairs to, to my room to study. About an hour later, Mom would call Scott and be down for dinner, and afterward, it was back to the books. Every time a teacher posted scores, my percentage went up. Unless I totally bombed the finals, I was likely to end up with C pluses and Bs. Nothing that would please my mom, but plenty good to keep me eligible. The Sunday night before tryouts officially, officially began, Luke phoned. Your grade's a problem? No, I said. Not anymore. How about yours? I told you, Nick. Nothing but A's for me. Always and forever. Neither of us spoke for a moment. Then I said what we were both thinking. You think we can make varsity? Luke laughed. No way. We're playing JVs. We're going to make the varsity... And, or, oh no, he said, no way we're playing JVs. We're going to make the varsity and we're going to play serious minutes. I had trouble sleeping that night. You see other guys' games, guys like Matt Markey or even my brother. You watch them play and you can spot weaknesses right away, but you can't see your own game, or at least not clearly. You never know what you, you like, what you look like to, your, to a coach. Oh, this is me for a sec. I just want to interject. That's so interesting. I think that's such an insightful thing to to write, to say. How it's easy to spot weaknesses in other people, but it's it can be so difficult to spot weaknesses, those same weaknesses in yourself. That's such an insightful thought. Um, yeah, here we go. Monday dragged. I couldn't pay attention in class, and my stomach was rolling over. I started worrying that I was coming down with diarrhea. I could imagine myself during trials racing to the toilet every five minutes. Classes finally ended and I headed to the gym. I walked slowly, trying not to seem too eager. On the way, I checked out the other guys head, heading to the gym. Some of them were returning stars like Carlos Febroa and Tom McShane, who played center and power forward. But there were lots of guys I didn't know. Okay, this is me again. I wonder if he's talking about... Because my friend, Kevin McShane, who's, who's always in my grade growing up, graduated from me, uh, with me at Bothell High School. 
he, he has an older brother whose name is Tom. And he's like a, Tom's a tall guy. He's a big guy. So he could have played center. He could play power forward. So I wonder if he's talking about, and Tom McShane, his brother Tom is probably at least like 12 years older than Kevin. So, which would mean that the years line up because we graduated in 2011 and this book was published in 2000. So everything lines up. I think he is talking about Kevin, my friend Kevin McShane's brother. That's so funny. Um, yeah. I just wanted to say that. Uh, but there were lots of guys I didn't know. I swung open the locker room door and stepped inside. Immediately, I spotted Luke. From the way I, he'd talked on the telephone and acted at P.E., I thought he'd be completely cool. But I could see he was as nervous as I was. His brown skin looked less brown, and his eyes darted around. Hey, Luke, I croaked, but he barely nodded back to me. I understood. My mouth was too dry for me to do much talking either. I opened the locker, yanked off my pants and shirt, and pulled on my gym clothes. I was about to close up the locker when I got the shock of my life. In walked Trent Dawson. What he was doing there was a total mystery. Okay, so he played tough defense and could create his own shot off that stutter step dribble of his, but the guy had none of the other stuff you need to succeed. He never stuck with anything. He didn't know how to follow rules or play as a member of a team. He was flunking all of his classes. For him to think he could make the varsity was a total joke. Only it wasn't funny because I had a sinking feeling that somehow, some way, he'd mess things up for me. I wasn't the only guy stunned to see Dawson suiting up. The whole locker room hushed as he entered. I guess he could feel all the eyes on him because without warning he turned on Brian Chang, a junior guard. What are you staring at? He snarled. Chang looked away quickly. When I stepped on the court, uh, all I heard was the sound of basketballs bouncing and shoes squeaking on the hardwood floor. It seemed as though there were 100 guys trying out, though the real number was closer to 30. I stayed away from the court where Carver, Fabroa, and the other varsity players were shooting, instead choosing a basket off to the side where Luke was warming up. When he spotted me, he fed me a bounce pass. I took the ball in for a lay-in. Just seeing one shot go down made me feel better. After that, it was jumpers, runners in the key, a few free throws. Eventually, Coach O'Leary blew his whistle and called us together. Good to see you out here. He ba He boomed. His big face was bright red and little beads of... Sweat had formed on his forehead. He held a basketball in front of him, and he swatted it hard with an open palm. He smiled. Now I know what you're thinking, especially you new guys, that I'm a fat, freckled Irishman with a beer belly, and it's all true. But I knew I know this game, gentlemen. I know this game. And if you listen to me, I'll teach it to you. He bounced the ball. Three lines, everybody. Pass and cut. Pass and cut. Let's see if you know how to run a fast break. In a game, you want to be the one to finish off the fast break, to rack up the easy two points and improve your shooting stats. But that first time through the line, guys would pass and pass until we were on top of the hoop and finally somebody had to shoot. Everybody was competing to, see, to seem the least selfish player. Everybody except Trent. His first time down, he took a pass at half court and then dribbled all the way in for a lay-in, leaving his teammates totally out of it. It was comical and I saw a grin crease O'Leary's face. I don't think he'd ever seen that done before. He blew his whistle, explained the point of the drill to Trent, and play resumed. Next came a rebounding drill, keeping the ball alive off the glass. Eight lines, four guys per group, nothing fancy. 
O'Leary was looking for some legs that could elevate. It was a chance for Luke to show his athleticism, and he did. After that, it was chest passes and bounce passes and the boring stuff. While we were doing those drills, O'Leary came around and took down our height, weight, and the position we were trying out for. Point guard, I said, when he came to me. So you want to run the whole show? No, I said quickly. His red eyebrows went up quizzically. I mean, yes. The eyebrows went higher. I mean, no. He laughed. Relax, Nick. I'm just having a little fun. He started to walk away, then turned back. Your brother isn't turning out? I shook my head. He's playing trumpet instead. Coach O'Leary nodded. That's what I heard. Is he any good? I don't know much about music, I said. But he sounds good to me. Well, we're going to miss him. He was a good guy to have on the team. Kept other guys steady. Always gave his best. You tell him I said that. I will, I replied, thinking how surprised my father would have been to have heard O'Leary praise Scott. A couple minutes later, O'Leary blew his whistle and called us to him. There are 30 of you out here, but only 12 uniforms in my office. To make this team, you've got five days to prove to me you want a uniform more than the guy standing next to you. He motioned to the other side of the court. Over there is Darren Nolan, our team manager. If you want to stay on this team, you treat him with respect. Those little pieces of paper he's sticking on the wall are your squad assignments. Find your name and pick up the right color jersey. He stopped and a little smile came to his eyes. Okay, gentlemen, time to show what you got. It was chaos then. Guys crowded around the slips of white paper stuck up on the wall underneath the farthest hoop. It took me a while, but finally I found my name. I was on the red team. I scanned the list of names. A rush of adrenaline came when I saw Luke was on my team, but it disappeared when I saw Trent was on the red team too. I couldn't believe my bad luck. Then realized it, it hadn't been bad luck at all. Or hadn't been luck at all. O'Leary wanted us com- comfortable on the court, so he teamed us with guys from our PE class. It cut down on the time it would take to get used to teammates. For most guys, the setup probably worked. For most guys, I was the point guard, our team's main ball handler. Only I couldn't get going. My hands didn't feel as if they were mine. The ball kept getting away from me, off my knee, my toe, my thigh, as if it had a will of its own. Luke was feeling the pressure, too. When he was wide open, he short-armed his shots, barely hitting the rim. When he was closely, closely guarded, he flung up wild shots instead of passing off. Part of his trouble was my fault. I wasn't getting the ball to him in rhythm. Afterward, Luke and I walked home together. Most of the way, we didn't talk. We were both too down. But just before he peeled off, Luke motioned toward Trent, who was a block ahead. He's probably got a better chance of making the team than I do. He rebounds well, chases down everything, never quits. I scoffed at that. Come on, the guy's a wrestler, not a basketball player. He'd foul out of a real game in about three minutes. Luke snorted. Yeah, well, better to be a wrestler than to be nothing, which was what I was. We lapsed into silence. Then Luke forced himself to smile. It was only one day. We've got four more. Right, I answered, trying to pump myself up. We'll show him tomorrow. Mm, there we go. That's a good cliffhanger for that right there. Show them tomorrow. See what uh, Nick and Luke can show them what they've got in the tryouts tomorrow. Um, Very good. I love that book. So, just reminds me of trying out for high school basketball at Bothell High School. The same exact situation as Nick and Luke were in. And getting cut. Not even making... Didn't make any of the teams. Oh my gosh. And I thought I was... 
I always thought I was a pretty decent basketball player, but I like to chalk it up to not being a part of the uh, summer practices and workouts that Coach Bollinger and the, the basketball bo- um, basketball coaches, they, they, I think they put a lot of emphasis on their uh, summer. They call them optional, but I've talked about this before, so <laughs> don't want to sound like I'm harping on it. <laughs> Gotta let it go. Get over it. Get over it, Chris. It was a decade ago. But I do have a good memory. I've talked about this too, but I should bring it up since I brought it up. Um, going to meet Bill Simmons at his book signing for the Book of Basketball. I did that right after I got cut from uh, high school basketball, <laughs> junior year. So at least a good memory, cherry on top of that story, you know? All right, let's get back to the action. Here we are, Angelina Jolie. Where did we leave? I think we left at Kung Fu Panda. So let's go Changeling, 2008, Christine Collins. Wanted. She plays Fox, 2008. Uh, Salt. Oh, it's the one. It's the, the showstopper. The, uh, it's what we're here to talk about, baby. Salt. She plays Evelyn Salt. 2010. Um, let's see what... Let's see what Salt's all about. A CIA, CIA agent goes on the run after a detector accuses her of being a Russian spy. 100 Minutes Action Mystery Thriller. PG-13. Leave Schreiber is in it. Ray Donovan is in it, too. Um, okay. I've never seen that one, but I heard it's good. Angelina's good. She plays a good... Um, Good, like, secret agent. I think she's that's kind of her specialty is like action movies where she's some sort of spy or secret agent. Um, TV short 2010 Kung Fu Panda Holiday, the voice of Tigress. Oh, yeah, this is an, another one where she's sort of a secret agent. I saw this one in the theaters 2010, The Tourist. Yeah, I was in high school, I remember watching this one. I think I went to it with some friends. Kind of definitely a weird movie to go to with friends. Just because it was like very, just like an adult. It seems like a grown-up movie almost. She plays Elise Clifton Ward. Yeah, it was like so like slow-paced and sophisticated. Johnny Depp is in it. Um, 103 Minutes, PG-13, action-adventure thriller. Revolves around Frank, an American tourist visiting Italy to mend a broken heart. Elise is an extraordinary woman who deliberately crosses his path. Yeah, so that's not, that doesn't give you much detail about what they do for a living or anything really. Um, <laughs> this, oh man, that's like what I remember about the tourist. Is there's just a bunch of boat scenes. It's like a beautiful. It's like a commercial for boating, almost. Just lots of... Oh, yesterday? It reminds me of the end of the interview. Yesterday, after I recorded the uh, animal podcast, I walked out into the kitchen, into the living room area. My roommate was watching the interview, the uh, James Franco, Seth Rogen movie. There was about 40 minutes left in it, so I watched the rest of it with him. And... 
remembered how great that movie is. That's a good movie. It's funny. But um, I like it at the end when they're in the boat and it's playing um, Scorpion, Winds of, Wind of Change. Do, do, do. And it's just like that guitar, that guitar riff for Wind of Change, Scorpion. I, I, it's so good. Any like 80s hair band fans out there are probably loving it. They're like, yes, I love Scorpion. <laughs> he finally brought up Scorpion. I've been, I've been listening to A Star is Born for 24 episodes waiting for Chris to bring up Scorpion. And he finally did. Thank you. It's such a good... And then the sky is like orange and red. And like the sun is setting. And their boat is just going through this lake. And there's like a beautiful green mountains surrounding it. Just a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. And that's the end of the interview. That movie... The uh, North Korea movie about James Franco trying to interview Kim Jong-un. It's a funny movie. Check that one out. I think it's on... Do believe it's on Netflix. Do believe you can add to your Netflix queue. Oh, man. I'm, like, looking over in the corner of my room right now. Still holding it down here. Stars Born HQ. Um, Still a beautiful day outside. Still icy blue sky. But I'm looking at my microwave... My unplugged microwave in the corner of my room. Just thought I'd give it a little shout out. Because I used to mention it all the time. And I haven't mentioned it for over 10 episodes probably. So just want to let you guys know that it's still in the very same spot. Hasn't moved an inch. Still got those t-shirts stacked up on it. Uh, one of them's Oktoberfest t-shirt. One of them's Seattle Mariners. Like a blue one. One of them's a Club Trillion. Uh, Mark Titus, we've talked about Mark Titus's book and his uh, his book, uh, Don't Put Me in Coach, and his blog, Club Trillion. Um, he was like one of my biggest inspirations for writing growing up. We I've talked about him a lot. Uh, Gonzaga shirt, G-U. Let's see, I'm going to stand up and walk over here. Because this Gonzaga shirt has really cool, it's like a cool texture for the G-U. I don't know how to describe it. It almost it's like a three D texture, I guess you could say. Oh, and then I have a, I have a shirt. This is one of my favorite shirts. It has a picture of Jimmer Fredette. Um, speaking on oh, Utah, wow, the the Utah connection, baby. Jimmer Fredette, um, maybe the most famous BYU basketball player of all time. Used to launch three pointers, and I have a picture. I have a shirt with a picture of Jimmer Fredette and it said it says you just got jimmered. And I got that on some website, some t shirt website. Um and then I have a dry fit um Montana State shirt there. Let's see. Let's see what some of the other shirts I have over here. Excuse me. Right now I'm wearing a cool one. This is one my dad got me. It says bikes and beer. It's a giant and signal in the middle. Um, I think he had this made in Boulder, Colorado. Because they're a big... Those are two of the f- most famous things in Boulder, Colorado. Biking and beering. Beering. Um, oh, this is one of my favorite shirts of all time. The Wild Feathers. It's another shirt my dad got me. Um, 
The Wild Feathers is a band that we saw, we saw live. They're one of my, one of my dad's favorite bands. They're um, kind of like a folksy alternative band, kind of like a the Head and the Heart, um, kind of that genre, I would say. But they're from Tennessee. We saw them live in a small club in Seattle. That was one of my favorite concerts I've been to too. That was an awesome concert. <laughs> What's funny about that concert is, oh my gosh, this is a funny memory. So it was like a tiny club, and I obviously drank too much, too fast or something, or didn't eat enough or something. I just wasn't taking care, taking care of myself, wasn't being responsible. Because um, <laughs> right in the middle of the concert, I just burst out. Or actually, maybe it was even in the op- when the opener was going. Because I think I saw one of the performers outside. I just ran out of the front doors of the club, of the tiny club that we were watching. And I just like threw up right. I almost threw up as I was running out of the front doors. But I managed to hold off till, till I got like, you know, like right around the corner. <laughs> right around the corner from the front door, basically. So, yeah, it was... It was, it, was, <laughs> it was hilarious. Oh my gosh. Just basically right in the sidewalk in Seattle. But luckily it was late enough at night and enough stuff was going on that nobody even noticed. Or at least I, as, that's my recollection. I'm sure lots of people were staring at me, but I didn't see that because I was, I was busy throwing up. Yeah, I do remember. I was like, I was seriously puking as I was... <laughs> I was going out the door and I was just like in the motion of throwing up and it was intense but that's one of my better puking stories um let's see what we got here what other sh- oh heartbreak hotel the king's heartbreak hotel restaurant and it's a giant heart in the middle that's a cool shirt um I'm just looking at my in my wardrobe here now they're all hanging up oh this is one of my favorites from back in the day I probably had this one since like seventh grade. It just says Weezer, but it's like written like it would be um, 3D. And then there's a pair of 3D glasses. And then the Weezer, like the Weezer symbol, which looks like uh, Wonder Woman, is in the middle of them. Yeah, and they're red and blue glasses. I like that one. That's a cool shirt. No, No wonder why I kept it. Here's a shirt that just has a picture of Clint Eastwood, his character from Dirty Harry, which is funny because I've never even seen that movie, but I bought that shirt online for some reason. It's just brown. It's just like brown shirt, which is not really a cool color for a shirt. <laughs> I I don't think I look that good in a brown shirt. I think, from what people have told me and what I've gathered over the years, I think my my favorite color to wear, the color I look best in. That represents me best is um blue. I like rocking blue shirts, uh, any shade of blue. Cause the one I'm wearing right now is kind of a royal blue, almost kind of like yeah, bothel blue. I would describe it as bothel blue. Uh, my high school's colors, kind of just like a standard blue. And then this wild feathers one's like a light blue, like um the San Diego Chargers powder blue uniforms. And then this uh, Heartbreak Hotel one's more of a, it's like a aqua blue, I would say, you know, aqua, marine blue. Um, 
let's see, I'm looking at, yeah, so I like rocking the blue. <laughs> if, if you're ever going to give me a present, send me a, send me a blue shirt. Speaking of shirts, I really want to make, I want to make a sponge cake shirt. That'd be so cool to make a, a blue shirt with a picture of the sponge cake logo on it. If there's anyone out there who makes shirts, um, hit me up on social, let's team up and let's make some sponge cake shirts. And maybe, oh, we could do a cottage country shirt and have a picture of a, like a cottage. That'd be cool. Cottage country. Maybe a picture of a cottage and then a picture of the, like the United States, the outline of the United States next to it. So it's like cottage country. I like that. Um, we could do turtle terranium. We could do one of those shirts. These are just some things we've discussed. Uh, icicle remover. We could do a shirt for that. Dolphin Hotel, all oh, a Dolphin Hotel shirt would be awesome. Um, now I'm just rambling on about shirts. I like shirts though, especially shirts with like cool designs on them, like cool printed. Except I've never been, I've never been into like at the mall. I've never been uh, intrigued enough to make one of my shirts from one of those people who could just do it on the fly at the mall. Um, and here's one. It says Team GB. I have a, it's it's a Team Great Britain. I'm not rocking the. I got one of the rival in here. <laughs> I should have Team USA. Um, no, my parents got that for me when they were when they were in England. Little England, beautiful, ain't it? Gorgeous, isn't it? Um, yeah, I would love to go to England. That's definitely one of the places I most want to go. Uh, Alright, now I'm going to hop back down. I'm still like walking around right now, pacing around, trying to figure out what to do with myself. I just need to sit down, calm down for a sec, go back to Angelina Jolie, let Angelina Jolie bring me back to Earth. She's she's a really solid Earth person. Person? Oh man, I said person. Um, Angelina Jolie is one of the most solid Earth pe- people I've ever met. That's for sure. I just wanted to throw that out there. She's really down to earth. Really, um... <laughs> okay, you guys get it. Uh, Where were we? We were on the tourist. After the tourist. Kung Fu Panda. Duh. Duh. The sequel. She plays Tigress, the voice of. Uh, Kung Fu Panda, Secrets of the Masters. A video short from 2011. She's the voice of Tigress. 2014, this is a big one. She plays the title role in Maleficent. A vengeful fairy is driven to curse an infant princess only to discover that the child may be the one person who can restore peace to their troubled land. 97 minutes, action adventure family, PG. Um, okay, I heard it was pretty good. I haven't seen it. Let's see. Is there anything else? I'm trying to think right now if there's anything else I really want to discuss. And I don't think there is. So we'll just keep on plugging. Here's something. Let me read a little bit from my um, little journal here. This is something that I wrote. Um, Here we are. This is a letter that I wrote. Dear Elon, uh, Elon Musk and Elon's official letter opener. Like, there's a person who 
their only job is to open letters for Elon Musk. Even though it seems like he'd get more uh, emails. Because it seems like more people who'd be fans of him would be technologically advanced. Alas, here we go. Dear Elon and Elon's official letter opener. What's next, am I right? Technology is crazy, but I'm sure that I'm not the first person to tell you that. Have you bought your condo on Mars yet? Does it have a crater side view? What's your next move with the Tesla going to be? With the Tesla going to be? When is it going to get wings and gills so it can take to the skies and the sea and be everything a penguin wishes it could be? When is it going to live up to the DeLorean from Back to the Future and finally, once and for all, leap through the hoops of time? When is it what what is your plan for the singularity? For when that singularity strikes our society? And the robots start to outwit humans. Are you just going to ditch Earth and become a permanent resident of Mars? Don't count out the moon. I hear the dark side is lovely in the autumn. How, how are you going to decide which friends and family to bring with you? Do you think humans stand a chance against the robot race? Or are we just going to become the lower class and their servants? Should we fight back with our Teslas or will those turn against us too? Anyway, what is the next invention you're working on? Is it a mind reader? Why would you want to know what random people are thinking? Wouldn't that be kind of creepy? What is a normal day for you? Do you go for walks and listen to podcasts like an average Joe? Or, or spend your time cooped up in a lab? Do you listen to comedy podcasts or tech ones? Or science ones? Or just classical music? Do you believe in aliens? And do you have alien neighbors in your condo in Mars? Did you buy it from an alien real estate agent? Do you have bus stop beaches, bus stop benches in Mars that have ads for real estate agents? <laughs> what are the buses like on Mars? Triple decker and flying with fun intergalactic warp speed capabilities and virtual reality system for passengers? Um, oh, here's some more. So what's the deal with that flamethrower? Is it like more powerful than the one from Fahrenheit 451? How many books could it burn? What makes it special? Does it just blast out fake flames of fire made from red and orange paper like a dragon float in a Chinese New Year's parade? Is it more poorly designed and ill-conceived? Is it more of a poorly designed and ill-conceived flame boomerang type of device that somehow skirted through the gauntlet of focus groups? <laughs> okay. That's, and that's what I left it. That's all I had there. So I thought that was a really fun... I like doing those crazy little exercises where it's like, I'm just going to write this letter to this random person, and I'm never going to send it. It's just in my journal. It's in my little Gryffindor. Gryffindor? Harry Potter journal. Um, And here's another one I wrote. This one's actually from Tom Brady. To Rob Gronkowski. That past one was from me to Elon Musk. So here's a little twist on it. Dear Gronk. Hey bud, it's terrific Tom. Hope everything is going swell for you, big goober. What you been up to since the big W? This was right after the Super Bowl. Uh, hold up for a second. Uh, let me put the old Patriot letter. Oh, wait. <laughs> This is this is something I wrote. This is a hold it for a sec. Let me put the old Patriot letter on pause. It's freezing up here in Pullman. It looks icy out there this morning. 
the snow has just become a part of the normal background here. So I can pretty much just so I'm pretty much just used to it by now. And expecting it to stick around for at least a few more weeks. That's gonna be so weird when all the snow finally melts, like a reawakening for this sleepy little college town. Anyway, excuse a brief commercial break and let's get back to the show. Okay, so back to the Tom Brady letter. Have you signed a deal with Slip and Slide yet to design the ultimate Slip and Slide? What's the ultimate Slip and Slide? Well, I'm glad that you asked. It includes several shots of fireball being dropped into your mouth like a baby bird getting drunk from its mama, peanut butter and Nutella pitas, and your darkest secret, uh, your favorite starter, which is your favorite star jacket from the 90s. Um... And that's all I had for that one. Yeah. So there's just a little bit. There's a little slice of my writing. Um, let's just read a little bit. I can't get enough of it. As you guys can tell, I'm obsessed. And this is another short chapter. So let's just keep doing it, baby. I love this book. Carl Duker. Night Hoops. From the old teacher at Maywood Hills at my elementary school, Mr. Duker, who I emailed uh, last year. To tell him that I'm an author now, too. And I think I tried. So I think he was like, wow, congratulations. And he said, like, cool. Like, I remember your brother and your mom. But I never had him, so he didn't remember me. But I think after that, I was, like, trying to get him to, I don't know. I wasn't trying to get him to plug my book. But I think I was trying to get him, like, look at it or something. <laughs> and he never replied. <laughs> so, I mean, he replied the once. And then I went... I, you know when you do you do one reply too many you know I did that and uh, he left me hanging on the <laughs> I think I sent him a link of my book or something or maybe something like that that's okay though I still I'm a huge fan of Mr. Duker and his books Carl Duker Night Hoops Chapter 6 Part 2 at dinner Scott was full of talk about his jazz band they were going to Port Townsend for some competition, and if they did well, they'd end up in Monterey, California over Christmas. The school will pay for the hotel, he said, but I have to come up with airfare. Don't worry, Mom reassured him. We'll find the money, and if you make it to California, I'm going with you. After dinner, I was broading upstairs about my own future when I heard a knock at the front door. I thought it might be Dad coming to check on how tryouts had gone, so I hustled downstairs to get the door, but when I opened up, Steve Clay was on the front porch. Can I talk to your mom, he asked. Sure, I said, but then I half-closed the door, leaving him out on the porch in the dark. Mom was downstairs working on the computer. I wonder what he wants, she said as she stood up. Back upstairs, she opened the door wide and invited him in. I went to the kitchen where I could hear, but wouldn't have said have to say anything. Steve Clay wouldn't sit down until my mom asked him three times. Even then, he wouldn't take anything. Not coffee, not a Pepsi, not even water. Upstairs in his room, Scott hit a high note on the trumpet and held it for what seemed like forever. From where I sat, I could see Steve Clay smile. He's good. Yes, he is, my mother answered, pleased. He coughed. Listen, what I'm about to ask is pretty strange, and I won't be angry if you say no. In fact, I'm expecting you to say no. He stopped. Go on, my mother said. I leaned forward to listen. Well, for the last few months... Trent has shown an interest in basketball. He motioned toward me, and I quickly looked away. That's probably because of Nick. Trent would admit it, but he admires Nick, especially the way Nick can control the whole basketball court, 
run things. He laughed, a dry laugh. Maybe that's because Trent can't control much of anything. But I feel if he could make the varsity, it might turn him around. He might learn some discipline, dedicate himself to something. His voice trailed off. I didn't know what he was driving at, and neither did my mom. I'm glad Trent is interested in basketball, she said. And I'm glad he admires my son, but I'm not sure what you're asking. Steve Clay breathed in deeply, exhaled. Well, here it is. Last week I got a job with Microsoft. It's just custodial. I don't know anything about computers, but that's not the point. The point is that by the time I get off work, it's late. I've been taking Trent to the junior high to shoot around, but it's pitch black where those cart courts are. What I'd like to do, if you let me, is shoot around with Trent in your backyard when I get home from work. An hour or so is what I was thinking. I could see the startled look on my mother's face. We don't have light in our backyard either, she said. He shrugged. You've got a floodlight over your garage, and there's the moon. We could see well enough. I don't. I knew how. I th I just thought that was. This is me for a sec. I just thought that was funny how he's like. That's such a. Naive thought. It seems like like a childlike imagination. It's like we'll just use the moon to light. <laughs> There's the moon. We can see. We can play basketball by the light of the moon. I thought that's funny. All right. Um. I like it though. I do like playing basketball at night outside. All right. Sorry for the brief intermission. Um. I knew how Mom felt about the Dawsons. There was no way she was going to have Trent in her yard. No way at all. I admire what you're doing, she said. Trent has needed someone like you in his life. You're welcome to use our backyard. My mouth dropped open. Steve Clay smiled broadly as he made his way to the door. Thank you. Thank you very much. After he left, I stormed into the front room. Are you crazy? You're going to let Trent Dawson shoot around in our yard? With Steve Clay, I am. Yes. That is so unfair. It's my backyard, my hoop, and you won't let me shoot around after dinner. But Trent Dawson can? You need to study, Nick. I need to study? Well, if I need to study, then he needs to live in the library. The guy is flunking everything. Have you thought about all the stuff in our shed? Because he's a thief, you know. He'll steal anything. And what are you going to do if Zach starts? That's enough, Nick. Her mouth was drawn tight and her voice was cold with fury, but I was plenty angry, too. What do you mean, that's enough? I mean, that I'm aware this is a risk, okay? But I'm willing to take it. And you're old enough to figure out why. So take yourself up to your room and do it. She walked past me and back downstairs. I stood still in shock for a moment. Then I climbed upstairs to my own room. Studying was out of the question. There was nothing on the radio, nothing on t TV. I picked up a Sports Illustrated, flipped through it, threw it down on the ground. I decided to call Dad. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, going to say, whether I'd tell him about Trent or not. I just wanted to talk to him. We have a phone upstairs in the hallway between Scott's room and mine. I punched in Dad's number. The phone rang once, twice, but instead of his voice, I heard a woman's. Hello. Her voice was bright and sunny. The blood drained out of me. I stood still, holding the receiver tight. Hello, she repeated, laughing. Anybody there? I hung up without a word. Boom. A new character enters the mix in chapter six of part two of Night Hoops. That's a good cliffhanger to leave that one on. We'll surely revisit that in the future. Um, speaking of revisiting, let's revisit The Tao of Pooh by Benjamin Hoff. We started this 
we started this a couple hours ago and I'm kind of interested. I just want to see a little bit more of it. So the how of Pooh. Here we go. Chapter one. You see Pooh, I said. A lot of people don't seem to know what Taoism is. You see Pooh? A lot of people don't seem to know what Taoism is. Yes, said Pooh, blinking his eyes. So that's what this chapter is for, to explain things a bit. Oh, I see, said Pooh. And the easiest way to do that would be for me, for us to go to China for a moment. What, said Pooh, his eyes wide open in amazement. Right now? Of course. All we need to do is lean back, relax, and there we are. Oh, I see, said Pooh. Let's imagine that we have walked down a narrow street in a large Chinese city and have found a small shop that sells scrolls painted in the classic manner. We go inside and ask to be shown something allegorical, something humorous, perhaps, but with some sort of timeless meaning. The shopkeeper smiles. I have just the thing, he tells us, a copy of the vinegar tasters. He leads us to a large table and unrolls the scroll, placing it down for us to examine. Excuse me, I must attend to something for a moment, he says, and goes into the back of the shop, leaving us alone with the painting. Although we can see that it is a fairly recent version, we know that the original was painted long ago, just when is, just when is uncertain. But by now, the theme of the painting is well known. We see three men standing around a vat of vinegar. Each has dipped his finger into the vinegar and has tasted it. The expression on each man's face shows his individual reaction. Since the painting is allegorical, we are to understand that these are no ordinary vinegar tasters, but are instead represent representatives of the three teachings of China, and that the vinegar they are sampling represents the essence of life. The three masters are Kung Fu Tzu, Confucius, Buddha, and Lao Tzu, author of the oldest existing book of Taoism. The first has a sour look on his face, the second wears a bitter expression, but the third man is smiling. To Kung Fuzi, his life seemed rather sour. He believed that the present was out of, the, out of step with the past and that the government of man on earth was out of harmony with the way of heaven, the government of the universe. Therefore, he emphasized reverence for the ancestors as well as for the ancient rituals and ceremonies in which the emperor as the Son of Heaven, acted as an intermediary between limitless heaven and limit, limited earth. Under Confucianism, the use of precisely measured court music, prescribed steps, actions, and phrases all added up to an extremely complex system of rituals, each used for a particular purpose at a particular time. A saying was recorded about Kung Fu Tzu. If the mat was not straight, the master would not sit. This ought to give an in indication of the extent to which things were carried out under Confucianism. To Buddha, the second figure in the painting, life on earth was bitter, filled with attachments and desires that led to suffering. The world was seen as a setter of traps, a generator of illusions, a revolving wheel of pain for all creatures. In order to find peace, the Buddhists considered it necessary to transcend the world of dust and reach nirvana literally a state of no wind. Although the, the essentially optimistic attitude of the Chinese altered Buddhism considerably after um, the essentially optimistic attitude of the Chinese altered Buddhism considerably after it was brought in from its native India, 
the devout, the devout Buddhists often saw the way that nirvana interrupted all the same by the bitter wind of everyday existence. To Lao Tzu, the harmony that naturally existed between heaven and earth from the very beginning could be found by anyone at any time, but not by the following, but not by following the rules of Confucianists. As he said in his Tao Te Ching, the Tao Virtue Book, earth was in essence a reflection of heaven, run by the same laws, not the laws of men. These laws affected not only the spinning of distant planets, but the activities of the birds in the forest and the fish in the sea. According to Lao Tzu, the more men, man interfered with the natural balance pr produced and governed by the universal laws, the further away the harmony retreated into the distance. The more forcing, the more trouble. Whether heavy or light, wet or dry, fast or slow, everything had its own nature already within it, which could not be violated without causing difficulties. When abstract and arbitrary rules were imposed from the outside, struggle was inevitable. Only then did life become sour. To Lao Tzu, the world was not a setter of traps, but a teacher of valuable lessons. Its lessons need to be learned, just as its laws need to be followed. Then all would go well. Rather than turn away from the world of dust, Lao Tzu advised others to join the world of dust. What he saw operating behind everything in heaven and earth, he called Tao, or Tao, it's pronounced uh, the way. A basic principle of Lao Tzu's teaching was that this way of the universe could be not adequately described in words and that it would be insulting both to its unlimited power and to the intelligent human mind to attempt to do so. Still, its nature could, could be understood and those who cared the most about it and the life from which it was inseparable understood, its best, understood it best. Um, over the centuries, Lao Tzu's classic teachings were developed and divided into philosophical, monastic, and folk religious forms. All of these could be included under the general heading of Tao, Taoism. But the basic Taoism that we are concerned with here is simply a particular way of appreciating, learning from, and working with whatever happens in everyday life. From the Taoist point of view, the natural result of this harmonious way of living is happiness. You might say that happy serenity is the most noticeable characteristic of the Taoist personality. In a subtle sense of humor is apparent even in the most profound Taoist writings, such as the 2,500-year-old Tao De Cheng. In the writings of Taoism's second major writer, uh, writer Zheng Se, Quiet laughter seems to bubble up like water from a fountain. But what does that have to do with vinegar? asked Pooh. I thought I had explained that, I said. I don't think so, said Pooh. Well then, I'll explain it now. That's good, said Pooh. In the painting, why is Lao Tzu smiling? After all, that vinegar that represents life must certainly have an unpleasant taste, as the expressions on the faces of the other two men indicate. But, but through the working... In harmony with life circumstances, Taoist understanding changes what other changes what others may perceive as negative into something positive. From the Taoist point of view, sourness and bitterness come from the interfering and under an unappreciative mind. Life itself, when understood and utilized for what it is, is sweet. That is a 
message of the vin vinegar tasters. Sweet. You mean like honey? Asked Pooh. Well, maybe not that sweet, I said. That would be overdoing it a bit. Are we still supposed to be in China? Pooh asked cautiously. No, we're through explaining, and now we're back at the writing table. Oh. Well, we're just in time for something to eat, he added, wandering over to the kitchen cupboard. There we go. There's a... There's your first little chapter of the Tao of Pooh. And we learned how to pronounce Tao. It's not Taoism, it's Taoism. Okay, okay, very good. Let's get back to AJ, A. Jolie. A. Jolie. Maleficent, we left you at. 2015. By the Sea, which plays Vanessa as Angelina Jolie Pitt. And this movie was also with Brad Pitt. 2015, 122 minutes, drama, romance. A couple tries to repair their marriage while staying at a hotel in France. Um, very general. Not a lot of information. It's a, it's um, a romance. A lot of drama. 20, it sounds like a, a serious version of Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Like a super dramatic, super serious version of that movie. Um, 2016. Maybe, uh... I was, I was trying to come up with a... Maybe it's like, um... Fighting with Sarah Marshall. <laughs> Argue... Because it's like fighting by the sea is what they do. So... Hmm. Going to a fancy dinner with Sarah Marshall. Going to a... Going to a fancy French French restaurant with Sarah Marshall. The, the Lace movie. Um, Kung Fu Panda 3. Kung Fu Panda 3. Tigress voice. Mon Guerlain, Notes of a Woman, is a short from 2017. She plays the woman. Those Who Wish Me Dead is just, that's all it says there. That's kind of creepy. <laughs> I'm going to click on that and see what comes up. There's just a picture of just a beheaded horseman. No. Here it says, um, A teenage murder witness finds himself pursued by twin assassins in the Montana, Montana wilderness with a survival expert tasked with protecting him in a forest fire threatening to consume them all. That sounds like an intense movie. Wow, that is a thriller. That's all. All it says is thriller. I buy it. Um, the one and only Ivan, or Yvonne, she's the voice of Stella. There's no year on this one either, but Brian Cranston's gonna be in it too, and Sam Rockwell, Helen Mirren, Danny DeVito. Is Danny DeVito the trash man? I'm I'm the trash man. Um, yeah, so it's a cartoon, animation, comedy, family. A gorilla named Ivan tries to piece together his past with the help of an elephant named Stella as they hatch a plan to escape from captivity. Um, come away. She plays Rose, 
a prequel to the stories of Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland. Wow. This one doesn't have a year on it either, so maybe next year or something. Michael Caine. Oh, oh, I think, I think I'm in a movie called Come Away. <laughs> my, my name's Michael Caine, and I'm in a movie called Come Away. You know, I'd like you to come out and see this movie Come Away, because it's a great movie, and I think you're real, really going to enjoy the movie. Come out to it, bring your whole family, tell all your friends to go see my new movie with Angelina Jolie. And that's my Michael Caine impression. It's called Come Away. I'm Michael Caine. And I'd like to thank you for listening to this public service announcement. As you can tell, this is my uh, tape for Saturday Night Live. I'm about to package this up and FedEx it on over to New York City. Just right, New York City on a on like a brown, brown cardboard box. Just has a little cassette tape in it. <laughs> I just sent him a cassette tape for some reason. Send this to Saturday Night Live, New York City. That's all I write on the box. And then the return address. Return address is Chris Arneson. <laughs> a star is born. That's what I write for the return address. Just write a star is born headquarters. <laughs> a star is born HQ, Pullman, Washington. Be like, you got to listen to podcasts to figure that one out. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe we made it. This has been quite the wild ride. What a beautiful day it is outside, though. Still not a... Actually, I guess I can't lie. Because we've got to be honest. That's the theme of A Star is Born. One of the main rules, one of the top rules, be honest. Hydrate. Um, stretch your back. Stretch my back right now. But um, there actually is one cloud. Kind of a big horizontal cloud hanging out there over the Palouse, um, so there is a cloud in the sky, but the rest of the sky is icy blue, beautiful, beautiful, <laughs> now I'm not going to wrap it up yet, we're not going to finish it, because you guys might think I'm crazy, but I'm going back to that basketball well one more time, we're just going to keep doing it, I'm having so much fun, I'm loving reading, I hope you guys like night hoops as much as I do, because... I'm loving this book. Basketball is my favorite sport. Carl Duker was a teacher at my school, and this book is based in my hometown. So it's pretty much everything's working for me right now. Here we go. Chapter 7 of Part 2. The next day, my legs felt heavy and my mind dull, but oddly enough, I played better. Maybe I was just too tired to, to be jittery, too brain dead to care. Whatever the reason, I saw the whole court. And that's what playing point guard comes to, seeing the court. When I'm on, it's as if I'm going at full speed while everyone else is moving in slow motion. Luke was playing better, too. I was getting him the ball where he could do damage, and his outside jumper was dropping. Swish, swish, swish. When the defenders tightened up on him, he cut back door, and I hit him with the bounce passes for driving lanes. It wasn't as if I purposely froze Trent out. Luke had the hot hand, so I kept feeding him the ball which is what you're supposed to do. But I'll admit that I could see Trent was getting frustrated. I could see it in his face, see it in the elbows he started tossing around. And I'll also admit I didn't do anything about it. The explosion came just before the final scrimmage ended. We were playing the gold team, and we were crushing them. 
Trent grabbed a defensive rebound and burst out of the pack, dribbling hard down the right side of the court. I took the center lane and Luke was to my left. Trent should have given me the ball, but he probably figured he wouldn't have gotten it back, and he was probably right. When he reached the key, he did a spin move on the first guy and blew right by him. But Matt Markey was clogging the middle, holding his position. Trent bowled him over, totally flattening him, just as he threw up his shot, an incredible spinning lane that tickled the twine as the two of them crashed to the ground. It was the shot of the day, but O'Leary blew the whistle. That's a charge, he called out. No basket. Trent climbed to his feet. You suck, old man, he muttered, just loud enough for O'Leary to hear him. What did you say? O'Leary demanded. Trent glared at him. I said, you suck. And I'll say it again. You suck. Coach O'Leary's face and ears went bright red. Off the court, Dawson. Off the court, right this instant. And don't come back unless you bring a letter of apology and a better attitude. I don't need you, kid. You need me. Trent pointed his finger at O'Leary. Let me tell you something, fatso. I don't need you. Then he looked around at all of us. I don't need any of you. This whole thing sucks. He grabbed the basketball from Marky and slammed it down. It bounced at least 30 feet in the air. With that, he stormed off the court. A couple of guys laughed nervously, but O'Leary glared at them, and they went quiet. Practice ended about 10 minutes later. In the locker room, evidence of Trent's fury was everywhere. The trash cans had all been tipped over and kicked around. Any clothes or shoes had been, had been left out, had been thrown every which way. There's one less guy to worry about, Tom McShane said, as he righted one of the garbage cans. And I'll tell you, I'm glad he's gone. I didn't like playing against him. The guy never let you breathe. That's the truth, Carlos Fabroa chimed in. On the walk home, I expected Luke to be falling all over himself, thanking me. After all, he'd scored about 50 points, and 48 had come on assists from me. His chances for making the team had soared, yet he was strangely quiet. What's eating you? I asked at last. I've been thinking about what Tom and Carlos said, that they're glad that Trent quit. I guess just about everybody feels this, that way. No, not that. What then? About how they said they hated to have Trent guard them. Yeah, so? Well, so would every player on every other team, wouldn't they? Dawson's played tough defense, really in your face, nonstop. What are you saying? I'm saying I hope Trent does come back tomorrow. We'd be a better team with him than without him. You've got to be kidding. The guy thinks only of himself. He has zero commitment to his teammates. Come on, Nick, as if you do. What's that supposed to mean? It means that we're all the, we're all the same out there, looking out for ourselves, trying to shine for coach. Me, you, Trent, everybody. All right, I admitted. That's true enough. At least now during tryouts. But after tryouts, I'll change, and you'll change, but Trent wouldn't. You don't know that. I do know it. We walked for a while in silence. I could tell he was angry. Look, I said, I don't know what we're arguing about. You heard, O'Leary. He's off the team, unless he apologizes, and there's no way in the world he will. So let's just forget about him, okay? Yeah, sure, Luke answered, but we never did get talking about anything else. That night at dinner, I kept going over the scrimmage in my mind, seeing things when I could have fed Trent a nice pass but hadn't. Just a couple of hoops, and he might not have blown up. Something wrong, Nick? Mom asked. I shook my head. Nothing. Up in my room, I thought about the woman who was living with Dad. I didn't want to meet her or even see her. 
I couldn't imagine having to live the way Trent did, with different guys in the house all the time, having different men eat at the table, shower in the bathroom, sit on the sofa in front in the front room, and then go to bed with my mom. I couldn't take that. I got so sick of thinking about Trent that I was actually glad when I remembered I had homework to do in geometry. I opened my book and started in. The problems at the top of the page were easy, but the word problems at the bottom were killers. They were all about picture frames and gardens with borders and rectangular swimming pools with square decks and circular spas. I'd been working about 30 minutes when the gate leading to my backyard creaked open. That was followed by the steady thump, thump, thump of a basketball being dribbled on concrete. Beneath me, in the darkness, were Steve Clay and Trent. It's crazy how life is sometimes. A day earlier, I'd been angry at the thought of his shooting baskets in my backyard. A few hours earlier, I'd been telling Luke that we were better off without him. But now I found myself hoping he would return to the team. If he'd quit entirely on his own, it wouldn't have mattered so much. But I didn't like thinking that my selfishness drove him off the team. I stood at the window watching them play, watching the way they moved in the milky darkness. Steve Clay was different from my dad, quieter. There was no coaching going on, no teaching at all. Every once in a while he'd say, nice shot or good move, and Trent would smile, a crooked little smile I'd never seen before. It was peaceful watching them, and it must have been peaceful to play that way. Not that Trent was just throwing stuff up, not caring. That wasn't it at all. He was methodically working on bank shots from 10 to 15 feet out. His jumper was pretty good, too. In the summer, he shot line drives. Now he was squaring himself up, getting a nice arc, and putting backspin on his shots. And they were going down, one after the other. I wondered where the charge, where the change had come from. And then a dizzying thought hit me. His shot looked like my th- shot. He was copying me. They stayed for an hour. I didn't watch the whole time. Instead, I went back to my geometry problems. Hearing the basketball bouncing outside was soothing, and I was able to concentrate and get them done. Around 11, I went to bed. But instead of sleeping, I found myself staring at the ceiling. A rush of loneliness grabbed me and held me. And when it finally let go, another feeling, equally strange, equally unexpected, took its place. I was jealous of Trent Dawson. Jealous that he had Steve Clay. He wasn't even his father shooting hoops with him, watching out for him. There you go. Nick, news alert, TMZ alert. Pick up the bookmark that I dropped on the ground there. Nick is jealous of Trent. I would have never guessed that. Didn't see that one coming. Um, That book just keeps heating up. I'm loving it. Um, I'm loving it, McDonald's. Let's, uh, Let's read. Angelina Jolie's final credit. Yeah, I just feel like I gotta give some more credit to Carl Duker, though. Let's look up Carl Duker and see what he's up to. Um, I'm such a big fan of his writing, like, his style. He has a few other books I've read. Um, let's see what he's got. Carl Duker. He has Jim Candy from 2007. Haven't heard of that one. I haven't heard of his new ones, necessarily. Uh, Payback Time... He's got a Wikipedia page. Um, he's from San Francisco, California. Uh, went to University of Washington and University of Cal, Berkeley. Went to Cal. Um, let's see his books, though. Um, novels. There we go. Carl Duker. Jim Candy. Yeah. 
Runner was a good one. Runner was a classic. Uh, a thriller that will keep you on... Whoops. A thriller that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Chance could have been a star runner in high school. With a mother who walked out on him and a father battling alcoholism. The kind of running he does is much different and much more dangerous than runners on the high school track team. Drug smuggling, terrorism, explosions, and death. This book is sure to keep you reading. Yeah, that was that was a good one. The main character lived in a like a houseboat down on the docks in Seattle. Oh man. I don't know if I'd ever really I would not really want to live in a on a boat. That just does not seem like I'm sure you would get used to the sleeping on it, but I don't know. <laughs> That's something that we'll have to explore in future um episodes is a uh, I think I did write that down, but we're going to talk about micro homes and yurts and storage containers and all sorts of crazy stuff that people live in nowadays. All those alternative forms of living. Um, here's another one. High Heat. I've read this one too. I read Runner as well. Um, I actually have it at home. I have both of these at home. Like the game of baseball, life is quirky and unpredictable as Shane Hunter discovers in the spring of his sophomore year. Suddenly and without warning, his life of privilege is turned upside down, and just as suddenly, life begins to seem seem utterly uh, without fairness or purpose to him. The game of baseball becomes a means of vengeance, a game meant to be played in the bright sunshine, takes Shane instead into his own personal darkness, darkness both strangely comforting and ultimately terrifying. Seems like a darkness is a big theme for Carl Duker. That's a big recurring theme. Whether it's a darkness, like literal, uh, the sky is dark, or like a personal darkness in one of the characters. Seems to be a big recurring theme for him. Um, painting the black. See, another dark theme. Uh, in his s- senior year of high school, uh, late bloomer Ryan Ward has... Just begun to feel the magic of baseball, the magic of catching a wicked slide, wicked slider. So that's wicked awesome. It's a wicked slider, <laughs> um, or of throwing a runner out, of training hard and pushing his limits. How you guys doing? You doing good? You see that wicked slider? <laughs> hey, hey guys, can you catch my wicked slider? Is it too wicked for you? Yeah. How you guys doing? You doing good? Um, what about my curveball? 12-6, baby. Goes all the way to the top and comes down to the bottom. Just like just like a special curveball is supposed to do, man. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, how has Mark Wahlberg not played a baseball role ever? He's never played the baseball player? He'd be a good, like, solid second baseman. Um, maybe a, like a right fielder. I like him at second base. Let's see. Catching a wicked slider. Throwing runner out. Training hard. Pushing his limits. But when one of his teammates clearly pushes limits too far, Ryan is faced with a heartbreaking dilemma. He must choose between his love for the game and his integrity. I've read that one too. That's another good one. Um, Yeah, that's Carl Duker. He has a lot of good books. Um, What is this? Did he write something about the... Washington, 
Let's see what you've heard about the Washington Huskies basketball team snarling through the Pac-12 season. Hopefully they'll win one game in the NCAA tournament. My Golden State Warriors doing well. But what's up with not being able to beat the Rockets in the regular season? Playoffs will be great again. That's like a little it's like a little blog post from Carl Duker. I'm on uh, Carl Duker's official website, which is carlduker.ag slash sites.net. I mean, if you just Google his name, then you'll find it. Um, I like that little that little blog post right there. Let's see what his new novel is. He says he's got a, a new novel coming out here. He's got a newsletter you can subscribe to. Um, okay, here, we, here it is. Golden Arm will be scheduled in time for the baseball season of 2019-2020. So, wait. So if he means in time for the baseball season 2019, then that would be like in a couple weeks. <laughs> but if he means... If he means 2020, then that's not for a year. Um, let's see. Golden Arm, part one. I got my baseball glove for two bucks at Goodwill. I found the Mariners cap I wear. I don't have an authentic jersey or any kind of cleats. I've never been to a Major League Baseball game. My mom can't afford cable, so I've only seen a few baseball games. Um, this is just a little bit from part one of Golden Arm. Um few baseball games on TV. None of that matters when I'm on the mound because I can pitch. I mean, really pitch. If your bat isn't quick, I'm going to pour my fastball right right past you. I love that description of pouring a fastball past someone. Um, It's kind of a a glass half full description. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. And all the money you spent trying to look like a baseball player won't do you any good. You're going down. If you do happen to have a quick bat, and not many guys do, then you might hit a soft ground ball or a little pop fly somewhere. But actually squaring up one of my fastballs and driving it far and deep, to do that to one of my pitches takes a fast bat, a great eye, and luck. Um, Yeah, there's just a little bit of that. Golden Arm. So check out that. It's coming out. Carl Duker's going to be putting that out. Let's see what... um. His biography is, oh, it's a book. He was raised in Redwood City, California. So actually, Southern California then. Uh, The son of Jack Duker and Marie Milligan Duker. As a young boy, he spent many hours in the creek behind his house and in the wooded area west of his house. Mainly, he kicked around with his friend Paul Garibaldi, looking for frogs and lizards and the occasional snake. Once he started school, Carl continued to wander about in the woods above his house, but as he grew older, he participated in sports. He was good enough to make most teams, but not good enough to play much. He described himself as a classic second stringer. I was too slow and too short for basketball, too small for football, too frightened to hang in against a good fastball. So by my senior year, the only sport I was still playing was golf. (laughs) That's funny. Um... You could play tennis. That's not physical. Uh, I guess you could get nailed by someone's serve if they're like a really hard server, though. That'd be unfortunate. Carl attended the University of Cal Berkeley during the heady days of student protest over Vietnam. He participated in many of those protests, but looking back, 
is not so sure how he feels about those days. Yes, we students were right about Vietnam. It was a waste. But I'm not sure we understood much of what was happening. And I thought I knew everything back then. And I cringe to think how little I actually knew. Carl was an English major at Berkeley, spending many hours reading the classics and writing bad, uh, parentheses, bad poetry in stories. He participated in intramural sports and in those years as well and was somewhat surprised to find out that he was, in fact, a decent athlete. Being free from coaches and fans allowed him to enjoy the games more. During his time in Berkeley, he especially enjoyed volleyball. Uh, as an adult, Carl has... Or if he played beach volleyball in his jeans. <laughs> um, as an adult, Carl has worked primarily as a teacher, though he also has had some time in the newspaper business. He played basketball and taught volleyball for many years, uh, but one too many sprained ankles forced him to give up both games. Carl still loves playing golf early Sunday mornings at Jefferson Park, a classic old public golf course located on Beacon Hill in Seattle. Jefferson is the course on which Fred Couples learned to play. Yes, Fred Couples learned to play, uh, learned the game on a public golf course. Carl's handicap at the present is 9.4. That that sounds good. That must be good. He wouldn't have listed his handicap if it wasn't good. <laughs> I'm not a golfer, as you guys know. Um, I'm assuming 9.4 is a good handicap, though. Now that he's retired, Carl goes to the gym every morning to do some light weightlifting and spend some time on the elliptical. Married and the father of Marion... Carl currently teaches in the North Shore School District, outside of Seattle. He's author of On the Devil's Court and lists all his books there. Um, since Carl grew up in the Bay Area, he's a longtime Giants fan. His all-time favorite players are Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, and especially Juan Marichal. These days, as a longtime Seattle resident, he follows the Mariners, Seahawks, and UW Husky teams closely. Should be the Sonics, too. <laughs> we'll be a hockey team. There'll be a hockey team soon, though. Uh, Carl Duger welcomes fan letters and will always write back. Uh, he prefers email, so you guys can email him if you want. cduker at gmail.com. He will eventually get to regular mail, but that usually takes him longer. To, to the snail mail. He's a snail. He moves at a snail pace to the snail mail. Um, awesome. Growing up in San Francisco, Carl Duker lived and died with the fortunes of his beloved San Francisco Giants, the greatest baseball player of all time was Willie Mays. Included in the video is Mays' uh, great catch of the Vic Wirtz's World Series drive to deep center in the polo grounds. Don't blink after you see the catch. Mays turns and makes an incredible throw as well. That's the famous Willie Mays basket catch, of course. Um, and there you go. That's a little Carl Duker deep dive exploration there. Man, it's just about time to wrap this baby up. Fold this burrito. Work a, working at Chipotle over here. Folding this burrito. Making it perfect for y'all. Um, here we go. The final credit for Angelina Jolie. Number 55 of 55. Maleficent. Mistress of Eagle. Of Evil. I think I said Mistress of Eagle. She's a... She's an eagle, uh, evil mistress. Um, the complex relationship of Maleficent. Maleficent. I think that's just the Kim, that's the Kimmy Schmidt um, theme song. Unbreakable. 
now that's stuck in your head, unbreakable. Um, yes, Maleficent. <laughs> the complex relationship of Maleficent and Aurora continues to be explored as they face new threats to the magical lands of the Moors. The land of the Moors. Um, man, getting loopy here late. Loopy late in the pod. Let's do it, baby. Let's rank our top three. Angelina Jolie's top three. Uh, definitely Kung Fu Panda. Um, I haven't seen, once again, oh, Pushing Tin. We'll throw Pushing Tin in there. Haven't seen a lot of these. Um, so Kung Fu Panda, Pushing Tin. And then I guess we got to put, let's just put Salt in there. Even though I haven't seen it, it's kind of been the ongoing theme of the podcast. So I feel like I, I wouldn't feel good uh, leaving Salt out. I'd be uh, upset about that, so... All you salt fans. Um, I don't know about the pepper fans, but I don't, I don't know about all your pepper heads, but pepperonis out there. Let's see. Let's do the bomb three. Let's say bomb three. We'll put by the sea, that the French one with Brad Pitt. We will put um, a mighty heart. And let's put the. Let's put the Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the other one with Brad Pitt, just because that one seems corny too. All right, even though I haven't seen any of those, we did it, guys. We did it. Holy cow! I'm so happy. Oh, I'm stretching my back. You guys should join me, wherever you are. If you're on a train, a train or a plane, automobile. I mean, be careful if you're driving, obviously. Or conducting. If you're the conductor of the train, be careful not to bump any important buttons or (laughs) not to steer the train the wrong way when you're stretching. You know, you don't want to ruin any, pull a Homer Simpson and create a nuclear explosion or whatever. Nuclear meltdown. Oh, feels good to stretch though. March Madness coming up pretty soon. It's late this year. March Madness is... A week later than it usually is, so you got some more time to fill out your brackets. Um, I was thinking maybe the real experts should everyone can fill out a bracket once they announce the teams, but a real expert would try <coughs> to do what Joe Lenardi does, <coughs> the uh, ESPN's resident bracketologist, and they would um, try to guess who's going to be in the tournament. They would guess the field as well. <coughs> I was just thinking that. Like, I would never do it because I haven't paid close enough attention to college basketball this season to try to do that. But I'm just saying, any hardcore college basketball fans out there, um, if you're trying to challenge yourself this March Madness, go ahead and attempt to guess what the field will be. Try to try to beat Joel Lenardi. See if you can take down the champ at his own game. Um, yeah, that was just an idea I want to throw out there. Let's do some plugs and call it, call it, baby. Here we go. I'm an author, Pullman, Washington, sitting down, looking out the window at the beautiful sky, icy blue sky right now in my apartment. Um, Amazon, Kindle, and Barnes & Noble are where you can find my books. Sponge Cake, a mostly made-up story about a completely insane town and what's in the fridge. 
Check out my blog, thegoat1.blogspot.com, my website, christhauthor.com. Follow me on Twitter at christhauthor8 and Instagram, chrisarneson8. Thank you so much for share, share, sharing the podcast with a friend, family member, coworker, anyone and everyone. We're doing it. We're doing it big. We're doing it strong, doing it solid. Uh, I can't wait to see what we do with the stars born. Um, thank you so much for being a starfish, member of the starfish community. We're still trying to figure out what to call y'all. Like, what do you call a group of starfishes? We tried to figure that out. Um, last episode, I believe people were saying constellation and they're saying like galaxy, but I guess we could call y'all like the constellation, the constellation of starfishes. I like that. That's good. It's a working title for now. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you for uh, rating and reviewing Stars Born on iTunes. And uh, yeah, sharing it with everyone. Awesome. We're doing it. We're building the constellation of starfishes over here. Yes, that does sound good. There we go. Let's uh, take a deep breath and do this, baby. Closing time. Time for you to go home. To the places where you belong I know who I want to take me home I know who I want to take me home I know who I want to take me home Take me home, home, home. Closing time, time for you to go home to the places where you be. No, thank you, thank you so much for joining me for yet another exciting episode of Stars Born, episode 24. Angelina Jolie had so much fun talking to you guys today about all of Angelina Jolie's movies. And all that other stuff. It was a lot, so much fun. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I hope you have a great day. Have a great night. Uh, whatever you're doing, stay safe out there. Uh, keep a smile on your face. And uh, I love you.